This week's episode is sponsored by Jagged Edge Productions and ITN Studios' Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2. Only in theaters, March 26th to March 28th. The suspenseful and thrilling sequel to last year's immense hit, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, amplifies the gore factor with ten times the number of kills to put fans both new and old at the edge of their seats. After Christopher Robin reveals their existence, Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, Tigger, and Owl land on the endangered species list as hard targets. Unwilling to hide in the shadows, the ultimate scream team embarks on a murderous rampage through the town of Ashdown to get their revenge on Christopher Robin, once and for all. So don't miss out, and mark your calendars to catch the limited engagement of Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2, only in theaters March 26th to March 28th. Tickets are available now. This episode is sponsored by RLJE Films. Unveiled through a made-for-TV documentary, five tales of found footage horror emerge to take viewers on a terrifying journey into the grim underbelly of the 1980s in VHS 85. Now available on DVD and Blu-ray. Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too. And I'll be right there behind you. All in the name of hope. All in the name of hope. All in the name of hope. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast presented by the Consequence Podcast Network. I'm Michael Rothman, Editor-in-Chief and President of Consequence of Sound, and I'm here with my co-hosts... Randall Colburn, the rockin' one. <laughs> and Mackenzie Gerber. Now, you could hear us pretty well, right? I think so. That's yes. because we're recording from a studio here in Chicago, Illinois. That wasn't always the case, though. When we started this podcast, we were actually huddled around an old Yeti microphone in Mac's apartment that he doesn't even live in anymore. That's right. And there were not four or three of us. There were like six or seven. So we wanted to go back to our older episodes and make sure that you, constant listener, actually have a good grasp on knowing that this is not how it's always going to sound. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's a very rough quality. And we just happen to have that rough quality over Stephen King's most iconic books. So Yeah, it's rough. But I'd say, yeah, for Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, Rage, and The Stand, I believe. Night Shift, too. And And Night Night Shift. Shift. We recorded those episodes in a very sort of primitive way, um, doing our best. That was before we got our studio, which makes it sound so lovely. Uh, But yeah, so you'll notice that the audio quality is going to be a little bit not up to par, but... I'd say the content of the conversations are still very, very good. I'm very proud of the analysis we did. You'll notice a few other changes, too. Like um, in these early episodes, we talk about everything. Everything. Yeah, we didn't like now we stretch our legs a bit. We do separate episodes for the movies, for other things. And for here, we're basically like, let's talk about all the Stephen King news, as well as the book, (laughs) as well as the films, as well as the plays, as well as everything. So these episodes run long. um, Well, I mean, a lot of ours do, but these run extra long because we're talking about those things. And you'll also notice that kind of the way that we break down our conversations now is a little bit different. We refine that 
over time. Yeah. So, so yeah, you'll notice that it's a little bit rougher, but it's the same quality Losers Club content and that these, you've always wanted. These episodes nearly killed us. Uh, the yeah. Night Shift episode, I got the flu because we recorded for everything. We recorded for 11 hours straight, yeah. I think. Two yeah. episodes back-to-back covering all, all, what, 20 stories? All 20 stories. And, and the movies. And the movies. Oof. It was exhausting. I was, I think towards the end of the episode, I started fading away. Dan started uh, crying. Dan started crying. <laughs> I cried in the Shining episode, I believe. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, th- th- these episodes are special. They're very good episodes. They're very special episodes, but we did want to make sure that you didn't go into the, this podcast thinking that it's going to sound like this forever. <laughs> because, obviously, as you could hear from us right now, that's just not the case. Yeah, if you're just popping in to hear like, oh, I love Salem's Lot. I'm going to check out this new podcast. Why does it sound like they're recording underwater? You know, we just never really thought that. Uh, I, I think that, you know, we were testing things out. We were yeah. seeing if anybody would even care if we did this podcast. And luckily, a lot of you guys did care. And you listened and supported us and followed us on social media. And so we were able to, you know, beef up the sound, make things sound better, expand our lineup and refine the way that we do things uh, as it is now. So. Because so much has changed mm-hmm. since 2017, not only with us, but the whole world at large and you're going to hear about all of it as you're journeying through each one of these episodes so why don't we let you continue your journey through king's dominion by visiting the creepy overlook hotel with the shining Today we're going to talk about The Shining. Uh, last week we, or two weeks ago, we did uh, Salem's Lot. We're really happy with the response to that episode. Thank you guys so much who have left iTunes reviews, liked our Facebook page, followed us on Twitter, engaged with our posts. We read all that. We appreciate all of that. We love the idea of building this as a community because, um, as you can tell if you've listened to the previous two episodes, we love to talk about Stephen King. <laughs> we love to talk about horror. We love to talk about all this goofy stuff. So um, thank you again. Before we begin, let's uh, hear some needful tweets from Consequence of Sound Editor-in-Chief, Michael Rothman. He's not a human being. No! Don't you see what he's done? Please kill them all. Let God sort them out. Well, we're recording this episode just a little earlier than planned, so forgive us if these tweets and updates may be a little old. Uh, we tried to cherry-pick the most evergreen posts, but, uh, you know, some things will be uh, time-stamped, uh, so to speak. Uh, as expected, uh, King was back on the front lines rallying against President Trump, and on Wednesday, January 25th, he tweeted, It was the ugliest first week of a presidency in the history of the American public, which, to be fair, I think very few would argue against. Um, Though things were a little more lighthearted a few days earlier, on uh, Wednesday, January 23rd, when he posted a photo of his corgi, Molly, he goes, Molly, the thing of evil, tries to convince me it was her stuffed monkey who shit in the corner. (laughs) Calls it an alternative fact. Now, was she referring to the uh, monkey from Skeleton Crew? Ooh, yeah. Maybe. Hey, Monkey Shines. That was a George Romero movie, but uh, nothing to do with Stephen King. No, but you know George A. Romero directed Creepshow. Yeah. And that was uh, written by And the Dark Half, I think. And the Dark Half. And you were supposed to do uh, The Stand originally, but um, couldn't do it. Oh, interesting. Uh, Unfortunately. And that is what we call a tangent. (laughs) A little tangent. Um, I will say uh, that same day... He had posted a YouTube stream of the rhythmic single Sisters Are Doing It For Themselves uh, with a little simple tagline that said, No comment needed. 
And uh, he's obviously referring to the Women's March that happened shortly after the Trump's inauguration. And it should be noted that King was actually part of one of the marches, uh, not in D.C. or Maine, but at his home in Sarasota, Florida, um, which he had said it was a there was a positive vibe there. And in television news, this is a hilarious one, and I'm sure Stephen King is going to be absolutely thrilled by this news. The Lawnmower Man is back in the fold <laughs> and will soon be adapted for VR TV, which means, yep, it still will have nothing to do with King's original short story <laughs> about a manic lawnmower. Uh, Jim Howell is uh, one of the men who bought the rights and uh, brought it to a VR production team called Jaunt, and he says... Uh, is that quote, like the jaunt, the skeleton crew short story? No, the it's jaunt? not like that, but uh, that's a good tie. Um, it, that'd be funny if the short story from the skeleton crew bought the rights to the lawnmower man. Oddly enough, the, the jaunt is more akin to the film version of the lawnmower man because they're both science fiction instead of horror. That's um, interesting. Man. That's literally where the parallel... I love that's the only parallel that could be tied to the... the I just the love that the legacy of this shitty adaptation... Which I found out recently was actually just another script that they yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. The Lumber in the book, and we'll talk about this, or the story, we'll talk about this more with Night Shift. It has nothing technologically advanced. He's supposed nothing. to be like the, the great a, god Pan. It's about an ancient ritual. Yes. Like, yeah. yeah. He's supposed to, because he has goat legs and mm-hmm. stuff. Like, the lawnmower man's this this like ancient god who eats grass and sets I mean, his lawnmower to kill people. It's, yeah. it's one of the stupidest short stories that, that yeah. he's ever written. Oh, I like it. I, I, it's, I it is so, and like... Well, I, we'll talk about that next We'll talk to it anyway, yeah. either way. Yeah. But, uh, so his quote, this uh, Jim Howell says... The original movie was a film of unsurpassed imagination and creativity <laughs> with, with its groundbreaking use of VR back in 1992. Maybe he was talking about Lawnmower Man 2 Jokes 1. <laughs> Which, true story, I went and saw that opening night oh, God. with Sorry. my mother the who had never night. seen the original one. And she, we got out of there and was like, that was an interesting movie. That is that has, that says a lot about the internet. And, and I remember her like being very worried about the technology at the time. Um, although now she's like obsessed with Facebook. But you know, go figure. I guess Job got to her. Um, so uh, yeah. So he basically says, together with John, we look forward to a contemporary team bringing to life a whole new world of VR, a world of immersive entertainment and communication. We are very excited to be working with John to create a VR realization of the film. Basically, he said the same thing twice. But can you imagine this? Jim Howe like going around Hollywood yeah. and be like hey so we have to Jim I'm working on bringing back the lawnmower <laughs> New Line Cinema's The Lawnmower Man to hey. be fair though you know we do make fun of this, the original Lawnmower Man film um, this uh, this studio I work at sometimes they were actually watching the original one on VHS and I had never really sat down and seen it and I started looking it up and it was a modest box office hit and the CGI effects at the time Yes, they were groundbreaking in the fact that they were one of the few movies doing them, you know, similar to The Abyss and Terminator 2 and all that. But it's funny because the original director of it still, like, touts that as being like, oh, yeah, we were on the, on the you know, cusp of technology. And I'm like, it still looks like shit, though. There's no... And, and yeah. is VR that much of a Well, a no, I liken no. it to, like, when Microsoft's Paint came out and <laughs> you start using that. It's groundbreaking, but I'm not putting that in theaters. You know what I mean? Like, you got to wait till it's perfected. You know what I remember really blowing my mind? Mario Paint. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I like Mario. Um, I like uh, Dr. Mario, though, because um, uh, this this boy likes some pills. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm looking, I for one am looking forward to Can't it. Can't wait till Night Shift. I'm sure there'll be more development. In other news, Mick Garris, director of multiple King television adaptations from The Stand to The Shining, which will the latter of which we'll talk about at great lengths today, has announced that he started his own podcast called Postmortem. The idea behind the podcast is to speak to some of his peers making horror movies, and the first episode finds him interviewing Justin Gerber's go-to horror auteur, 
Rob Zombie. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're gonna say the master. Yeah. I think you're gonna say interviewing Justin Gerber. <laughs> oh no, 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 no. That would that would be um, that would be probably a more fascinating uh, episode than uh, talking to uh, the director of the Halloween remake and um, oh. countless other awful horror movies. But um, he says uh, the next episode after that will actually feature Stuart Gordon of Reanimator fame. Ooh. So podcast will definitely start there. Um, Postmortem's a good name. That like is a good that. name. Yeah, it is great. a good name. And you know, Mick, Mick Garris is a cool dude. So I'm, yeah. I'm glad that uh, Mickey said he looked like a cross between. Uh, well, that, was, that was uh, me. That I, was I think said? he looks like a cross between uh, Kevin Klein, the actor, and Jay Maskus from Dinosaur Jr. <laughs> no, you can Google those images and uh, we'll let you uh, play with your imagination Do a on that composite. one. Use VR technology. To yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Use the lawnmower VR game that's going to be coming out in, uh, in a couple of months to find that. Anyway. Uh, look for a link uh, to uh, Mick's podcast in the uh, Post and Consequence of Sound. And um, that's a wrap on uh, Needful Tweet. The Tweet Beat. Great. Thanks, Mike. Before we get started uh, properly on The Shining, um, I'd love for us just to all go around and discuss, you know, what was our first uh, encounter with the book? Um, did we see the movie first or read the book first? And, or, um, and then also what edition? There's so many editions of every Stephen King book, especially the older ones, that... I think it's kind of fun to talk about which specific editions we had. Um, I've touched on in previous episodes, sort of my first encounter with King was in um, my grandma's basement, um, where I used to sneak down there and read. Um, you know, she had three cuts. She had uh, The Shining, Christine, and The Dead Zone, and um, I was obsessed with flipping through those. And so The Shining, though, was the one that I was probably, you know, the most freaked out by. Um, and a lot of that had to do with the cover. And this is... Um, this is a edition of The Shining that I don't see in bookstores ever, and I wish I still had it. I don't think I do, though, But because um, my grandma did eventually give them to me based on my, my weird interest. But uh, it was an all-silver copy. That's the one I, I saw, really? too. Yeah, the blank face on it? Yeah. Yes. Like white face. Yeah. Yes. yeah, and that's, like, I never see it now, but it was all-silver and it had a white face on the front. Um, uh, and I remember finding that image very eerie, and, um, yeah, but I remember, uh, when I took those three books, uh, Christine was the first one I read. And by that point, I think I had only read The Shining previously. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, The Stand previously. And then I read Christine and then I read The Shining. And, um, and I remember The Shining wasn't my favorite book when I was a kid. Um, honestly, and like rereading it for this podcast, it was sort of interesting to see how, you know, it really takes its time getting to the horror. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is very much a book about a family. And I think I was, you know, I was reading this when I was 11 years old, probably somewhere around there. And so I remember at the time just being like, get to the scary stuff, get to the violent stuff, because I was, I was a great kid. And, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, and so uh, uh, that's how I remember reading it. And um, I know that I had already skimmed through a lot of the stuff and I had encountered you know, the dog man, the woman in the tub, a lot of that stuff before I'd even read the book in full. So, but I remember it was still chilling very much in context. And um, yeah, so that was sort of my first encounter. Mike, what about you? I'm, it's, it's very similar, actually. I, there, you know, the cover was something that I encountered also through, you know, family. Um, but it was a different cover, actually. It was the one that I think is pretty prevalent in like a lot of older bookstores where it has like the whole family drawn on the, on the cover and then you see like the hedge animals and like that are around it and then the hotel and I think that's the original kinda, one. that's the original it's that the, it looks yeah. kind of almost like a Drew Struzan Danny's one. eyes are blank they're, that's uh, and that's yeah. the scariest that, that's what scared me was Danny's face because it reminded me of the um, the photo that was captured the quote unquote captured in the Amityville house um, because it's it's very eerie how like he's just staring off like just 
in the, with these dead eyes that, mm-hmm. that it's just he almost looks like the scary person which is funny because he's actually the hero of the book um, or the quote unquote hero so I had always seen that cover and that, that, that always really like uh, like creeped me out because I would see it at different people's houses you know like mm-hmm. I'd go to my friend's house and their parents would have it or I'd go to my um, uh, one of my family friends would have like a bunch of st- old Stephen King books and there was always that one and it would always be a challenge to myself to like take a look at the cover because mm-hmm. that, that cover always creeped me out um, but uh, once again, ding, 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 I uh, saw the film before uh, reading the book, and that's just how it's going to be with me, probably. But, the Kubrick uh, version? The Kubrick version, which is, I, I mean, it's in my top five favorite films of all time, so I, I, like, I, I just love that movie. But um, as a kid, it was, you know, I also patrolled, like, the 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 horror sections of, like, Blockbuster or, you know, there's this... <laughs> patrolled? The patrolled. Like, like, well, was, like, twirling a billy club. No, all, all, all you need to do is what just What are you picture, doing in the side? Well, <laughs> just imagine this, like, tubby fat kid just walking through, like, the, you know, the halls of the, the, the video store going, like, Mother, I'll have that, you know, video. Um, did you have a lollipop? And I did have a lollipop with a little spinner uh, hat on there, you know, just this fat Jewish kid walking around. Um, but, uh, you know, just obnoxious, like, I want that one! Um... But I'd always see, you know, Jack Nicholson's face, and I'd and I'd, and I'd recognize him from Batman. So, um, <laughs> you know, from 1989's Batman. So I'd always be like, uh, I'd want to rent this movie. And my parents were pretty forthcoming about what movies we could watch. So I, I was. They eventually let me um, rent it, and I. It still is like I still. It's like a hard film to watch alone because it's it's terrifying. So I I did finally read the book years later. Um, uh, when I was in like elementary school or like middle school or something, I can't. I think it was like, maybe like fourth grade or fifth grade that I finally read it. It was like I think it might have been after Jurassic Park because I, I was like, well, I'm reading big books now, so you know, <laughs> I'm going to tackle these. Um, and I just didn't like it as much, you know. I I, I think it's because I, I was so I was so raised on like the 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 slimmer version of Kubrick that I didn't, you know, I just didn't really take to it. I did. I also didn't really like the the final act, and um, and this is just me as like this like young critic I guess is like probably like 10 years old just being like I don't like this book or whatever but um looking at it now like I, I just definitely have some different thoughts and I I, lo- I really love this book now but well I've read well I start the first time I tried to read this I remember I was in high school it was during driver's ed and you know you're waiting for the other people to, to drive the car around and I read that I checked out that copy from the library the one the silver backing with the blank face and the the black hair, whatever. It was. Justin, do you still have this? I, I don't have that. I didn't no. steal that from the library. That is funny it. that three of us saw yeah. that one, but I haven't seen it since. Then. I haven't either. And I've never seen this cover. Yeah, and I didn't finish it. I didn't finish it, so I finally read it. It's actually the book that Randall brought today. It didn't say the copyrights. The Penguin Mid Nineties Paperback Edition of The Shining, and I did read that. I guess I was about twenty twenty one, and I was very disappointed with the conclude the uh, climax mm-hmm. but we'll get into how my feelings have changed about that as I've grown older and then I finally uh, read it again uh, about a couple months ago it's I don't know what the hell this is but the, it's a novel it's a <laughs> paperback novel it was a 2012 first anchor books mass market edition for any, any of you uh, bookophiles out there yeah I actually have a question about this series do they yeah. stop Doing those because I've only seen them you know, every to, like, once in a while. They have or stand also um, Salem's Lot and but no, no. I, I, I bought them in that one, but like I feel like they stopped at the stand and they haven't really done oh. anymore though. I don't know. I mean, I feel like every few, every five or six years, they've got a new mass publishing a paperback that have different covers and whatnot. Right? So many for the collectors out covers, there. Man, it's crazy. They're really cool looking. Yeah. I like yeah. them. I like them. 
Um, yeah, I also saw that silver edition. I remember I thought that Danny's face on the front looked like the blank from Dick Tracy. <laughs> so I thought that was cool, even though that book... <laughs> oh my god, I probably made that connection, yeah. too. Cause yeah, because it was Dick around, around yeah. that era. Um, I actually got interested in it because my dad had sort of a Stephen King resurgence. He had kept up with all his books for a long time and then didn't. And, um... When I would go to Little League practice when I was, like, nine, my dad would have to wait for me. And so he just started reading Stephen King books because he was out there in the boring Florida heat with, like, nothing to do. So he had two hours just to read straight through. And so he kind of reread all of the classic ones from when he was growing up. And The Shining was one of them, and I saw that silver cover. We should find out what, like, which company it was who put that out because I really distinctly remember it. And it was also, um, do you remember the Turtleback covers of the library? They were, like, hard covers, but they were essentially paperback covers the paperback novel. They were hard done. So, yeah, that's how I read the yeah, they, shift. And, yeah. They were like paperback images that got emblazoned onto this like glossy hardcover. Um, so anyway, I that really piqued my interest. I, it didn't necessarily scare me, that cover, but it made me interested in it just because of that blank connection. And uh, I probably read it about a year after I saw that cover. And the edition I had when I read it was, they put out a bunch of these and they, they were the, the chain of books my local library had. They were hardcover versions and they would be they were solid colored uh, borders like like the whole cover would be green or something like that and then it would just have a square photo just very simplistic um, and it would be a painting like the Salem's Lot one was just like a bat flying over a town oh so um, kind of like Kanye's uh, My Beautiful Twisted it, it, actually the, that format exactly yeah. yeah I don't know what company it was but they all had this look and then the shining one was just the hedge lion and I remember asking my dad oh why is there a lion on the front of this book and he told me about the hedge creatures that come to life. And that's what really made me want to read it. I remember enjoying it. I, it. It didn't creep me out the way Salem's Lot did or The Stand or some of his more grisly books. I mean, there's certainly violence in The Shining, but maybe, maybe because it's self-contained, it, it didn't it didn't seem as as crazy of a novel to me as some of his other stuff. Even, even though in retrospect, it, I mean, hedge animals come to life. Yeah. That's crazy, right? But it didn't seem as... Um, as, as cruel and gruesome as some of his other works. So I, I liked it well enough when I was a kid, um, but maybe wasn't drawn to the more visceral aspects of it like his other books. And then rereading it as I got older, um, I loved it. Uh, we'll go more into this. I actually think I did dig the ending back in the day, but I'm maybe a little bit more sour on it now. Ooh, and maybe some of that has to do true. with Dr. Sleep, and we'll talk about that but, as well. But that's what's so great, is that we're going to have this yin and yang. Yes, exactly. First time arguing on the Loser's yeah. Club, but yeah. Get, out you, your, yeah. Um, get out your gloves. Sadly, I had not actually read The Shining until about a month ago. Really? Uh, I never even tried to pick it up. Um, I think that the first time I ever saw the film was... Oof, I don't know, Justin would come home with R-rated movies when uh, I was not allowed to watch them, and I'm sure we watched them then. Uh, so my first uh, experience with The Shining was Kubrick's version, uh, which was absolutely horrifying in every way possible. Um, I did watch the miniseries uh, that was on TV, and I remember being very weirded out by <laughs> how totally different it was, yeah. and I could understand people going in uh, Wait, to so uh, you... the miniseries, or, or to the mo- to Kubrick's version, thinking, this is not the book. You saw Kubrick's, then saw the miniseries, then I saw the miniseries, then read the book. Then I read the book. Gotcha. So I'm on the same page. Very same here. Yeah. So it was very interesting reading the book because I, you know, and obviously as an adult, uh, and I don't know if there would have been a difference reading it as a child. It's interesting that none of us read the book before seeing any of the movies, right? 
Yeah. No, I, I oh, did. I read oh, the book. Oh, I read the oh, book. Oh, oh, you, oh really? You read yeah. Book. Well, oh, wow. and my, my dad would always trash the Kubrick one because he was very much like, no, I need to adapt it just like the book. Um, yeah, we'll talk about that yeah. in the page to screen because yeah. I think we're going to have yeah. similar opinions on how we'll look at the movie. So uh, I was thrilled to finally read it, and uh, I, I really loved it pretty much straight through. The ending's kind of crazy, but I, I think in terms of the book, it, it works great for me. So I, I, I was really excited to read it for the first time. Before we move on, uh, I'd love to just have uh, one of us read the synopsis of the book, um, just to refresh ourselves on the story and, you know, the general vibe. So um, Justin is going to read from the, which edition is this? This is the 2012 paperback edition of All right. The Shining. Uh, Jack Torrance's new job at the Overlook Hotel is the perfect chance for a fresh start. As the off-season caretaker at the atmospheric old hotel, he'll have plenty of time to spend reconnecting with his family and working on his writing. But as the harsh winter weather sets in, the idyllic location feels ever more remote and more sinister. And the only one to notice the strange and terrible forces gathering around the Overlook is Danny Torrance, a uniquely gifted five-year-old. The Shining. <laughs> uh, it's coming. <laughs> that sounded like a '70s movie trailer. Yeah, I always did that like Halloween. Really? Halloween. Yeah, Bring yeah. Up. Halloween. I think they say Halloween like eight times in that trailer. Yeah. Let's uh, talk about the hook. Ah, yes. Don't you see? Don't you see how clear it all is? Not only can you see the future, you can. I can change it. You can change it exactly. Well, it's essentially a haunted house story. I mean, that's the hook. Yet, similar to what King did with small towns and vampires in Salem's Lot, he uses the haunted house to embellish the real narrative at hand, which, as Justin had said, it's about, you know, it's this broken family suffering from abuse brought on by addiction. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch to kind of look at Danny as a metaphor for a special needs child, also for raising a special needs child. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, I mean, after all, both Wendy and Jack actually have no clue kind of how to raise him so I yeah. think that's looking back now I think that's kind of an interesting um, perspective on that but um, I, I think as a, as a whole though King definitely leans heavily on Edgar Allan Poe who did the same thing with The Haunted House nearly two centuries ago with The Fall of House of Usher um, and then he also references Poe's other story The Mask of the Red Death and if you've read both of these short stories you'll see how Usher informed uh, you know Jack's downward spiral and, and how the Red Death mirrors the isolated tension and all the eerie scenery such as the Masquerade Ball and, mm-hmm. and what have you but there's another uh, author that um, actually King references in the book um, which, and he references Edgar Allan Poe but he also references uh, Shirley Jackson yeah. uh, oh, yeah. The Haunting of Hill House which Ooh. I don't know if you know, you readers have ever read it, but it is hands down one of the scariest books I've ever read. Like, yeah, Honey of Hill House, the ending is so chilling, I won't spoil it. And yeah. um, I actually read her, um, the you can spoil of, the book, is, is old. Yeah, it, 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 is, it is old. Well, it, it just goes back to it's interesting that he brings that up because the Haunted Hill House, you could also argue, maybe is more of a metaphor, like how much of it is inside her head and everything like that. And The Shining is strange because it's. The horror is not metaphorical. It's metaphorical in that maybe it ties back to the issue of addiction and the issue of the writer's journey and struggling to create something. But the ghosts, are, I think, 
are very much real in King's version as we see and they, later on. And they matriculate very similar to how like Shirley Jackson puts it in the haunting. Exactly. Of the house. Like yeah. I mean, there's there's that. Do you do you remember the book? Like yeah, uh, yeah, I read it. Just I mean, uh, even just year. the way that they pop out in mm-hmm. the book. Like there's a scene where I think they're running away from the house. They just kind of appear. And they have like oh, there's a pic- a ghost picnic that's mm-hmm. happening outside in the middle of the night. Like that's Ooh, that's, that's it's very I haven't read scary. It. It's really good. And, like they stumble upon all these people just like sitting there. And uh, like it, it's very similar to how like the ghosts just kind of pop up in the Overlook. But um, if you're actually looking for a really good film version of that, and Mac can attest to this, is The Haunting is just is a great well, great. Adaptation. And we're talking about the 1963 version, exactly. <laughs> not not the Liam Neeson Hell House. Oh, and Wilson. beyond the version. Uh, um, yeah, I've all, I also think of Richard Matheson's Hell House, um, a book about you know a group of. Um, uh, clairvoyance and um, but also a skeptic I believe who who go and try to determine whether a house is haunted and um, and but I think a key component of that when we're talking about the haunted house story which is sort of the hook here is also the sense of isolation I think one of the key aspects of um, a good haunted house story is the ability to not escape mm-hmm. and um, I think what King does so well here in The Shining um, and really exploits for good horror is the idea that there the the potential for escape is so slim. I mean, what Halloran has to go through to go to them, um, you know, is defying all, you know, oh, yeah. ideas of logic and safety. And um, But I think that sort of uh, claustrophobia and the sense of no escape is what really elevates a good haunted house story, which is why I think The Shining um, really exploits that hook really well. Yeah. And there's a really good adaptation of Hell House called The Legend of Hell House uh, from the 70s starring the great late Roddy McDowell. McDowell. Oh, I didn't um, know that. I love Ryan McDowell. You guys just watched the Fright Night documentary. That's correct. So. Um, yeah, going back to what Randall is saying, it's interesting in The Shining because the whole point of them going to the Overlook is a fresh start. It's to help him cope with his alcoholism, and you know he broke Danny's arm. However, accidentally, he still did that in kind of a drunken rage. There's some demons already within Jack Torrance, and it's funny that this thing that is supposed to be the cure for that ends up being the catalyst for making those things worse and it, it ties back to I, it's one of those sayings that gets thrown around I don't know who said it originally but it's that thing of like oh you know if only man could be in a room with himself you know and, and it's like he can't like Jack Torrance is he's trying his damnedest throughout the whole novel he's trying to be good but at the end of the day whether or not you want to go the more metaphorical route with, uh, with Kubrick's version or the more literal route th- this particular guy in that situation even when the ghosts are real and all that stuff, it wouldn't have mattered. I mean, because he, he's... I don't want to say he's doomed already because he is trying to fight it, but, I mean, it, it it's just funny that this thing that he's, he goes to that's supposed to be a healing, a place of healing or whatever ends up just being a place of complete um, enabling. And, mm-hmm. and we're talking about addiction terms. Well, it's so interesting that the, it really is such a mirror. They really are mirror... They mirror each other. Like, mm-hmm. I mean... Jack and the hotel. Yeah. I mean, on the surface, the hotel is supposed to be this like grand, great place that that that's supposed to be luxurious, full of stories, this, full of stories. And but there's like this dark, seedy underbelly to it that has so many demons that just go deep and deep that it actually overwhelms the actual hotel mm-hmm. itself, which is very similar to Jack. I mean, he talks about how he comes into there and has his you know best smile that he could give PR to, smile, the PR I smile, love that term. which yeah. I love that. Uh, he gives the best PR sm- smile to Ullman, and there is just uh, a, an avalanche of like disaster that's behind this guy that he hides. Yeah. So it's kind of funny when eventually when he goes and like storms off and goes nuts on on Ullman, he's 
so hypocritical in the sense yeah. that he's not even divulging anything that's that he has underneath the surface. Really quick, th- not to get too much of a tangent. So when I first read The Shining. I thought PR stood for Puerto Rican, <laughs> so oh, I man. just didn't. I do. I didn't understand the, the first like. That's like early on, right? It's yeah, like one of the first yeah. chapters. The interview with Ullman, isn't yeah, it? It was, yeah, it was just strange. Which hey, I mean, I guess he could be Puerto Rican. Who knows? But I don't remember if they. Oh, there was like so many racial epithets like thrown around yeah. Oh, yeah. in the first chapter that you. I could see. Yeah, no, that's the thing, being... and, and I just didn't really get why that was important. It didn't really affect the rest of the book. I just remember being very confused. Oh yeah, because it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> um. You know, and I think there's another hook here, too, that we should discuss, which is the idea of clairvoyance or psychic abilities, Mm -hmm. um, which is something. And what's interesting is that The Shining began as a book called um, Dark Shine. Shine. Yeah, which um, he started in 1972, which was about a psychic boy in a psychic amusement park, which is such a (laughs) weird, like, what is a psychic amusement park? I know, but I, and so it's interesting is that the story seemed to click for him when he came upon the idea of putting um, a psychic child, which is an idea he was already playing with into a haunted house scenario. Mm-hmm. So the story really began with Danny, which is really interesting. And I think it really coalesced for him. Um, well, he said it did. Um, when he went on a trip with his wife to Colorado and they stayed at the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado, and um, which is where they filmed the miniseries, right? Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. which is interesting. And um, they actually stayed in room 217, which is a, a neat little nod. But uh, they actually like were right before it was closing. That's when they got there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was right before it was closing up for the season. And, um, and sort of, and Stephen King said... Uh, you know, he said, um, except for our table, all the chairs were up on the tables. So the music was is echoing down the hall. And I mean, it was like God had put me there to hear that and see those things. And by the time I went to bed that night, I had the whole book in, in my mind. There's actually um, sort of an, he has another quote that sort of opposes that a little bit. There's a little more nuance to that. And that's that he... Um, uh, after dinner had gone to get a drink and the bartender at the hotel's name was Grady, yeah. which is really fun. And then that night he fell asleep and dreamed of his three-year-old son who was probably, was that Owen probably? I think uh, that would have been Owen because Joe's younger, right? I think. No, Joe's older. Joe's so older. Okay, okay. The Joe. book is dedicated to Joe Hill. Okay, yeah, then so there you go. Joe King. So it was uh, <laughs> Joe um, uh, being chased down a hallway mm-hmm. by a uh, fire hose. And so he said he woke up and was freaked out and smoked a cigarette, and he said that's sort of, you know, when he figured out the whole book. Well, and he said, too, and this is something I don't think he realized until later on, similar to, you know, Bryce and Ellis always tried to play that, oh, American Psycho is about my dad, but later on he's like, no, it was about me and my the anger I was feeling yeah. at the time. Stephen King later on recognized, obviously he's not murdering his kids or trying to murder his kids or anything, but he did recognize later on that he had, at the time, feelings of, resentment towards his family which obviously were really feelings of of the addict of him being frustrated with himself and not being able to kick this thing and 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 having these like awful thoughts about his family like i said not i'm not saying Stephen king wanted to hurt or murder his family but i think when you have a creative mind everything that results in all the good stuff about you being imagined and being talented that can also involve some very dark thoughts as well and so I, i always thought that was very um i don't know there's very uh accurate of him to say and, and kind of cool for him to say it later on like oh looking back Jack Torrance was very much a reflection of me because he's obviously not, not the most uh, appealing character 
Yeah, in the Stephen King Companion, he elaborates on those ideas. Um, this is a long quote. I won't read all of it. But he says, sometimes you confess. You always hide what you're confessing to. And I, I find that to be very mm, true. And I'm yeah. sure we can all relate because we're all writers to some degree. And I know I've written things... Um, pieces of fiction or whatever that I realized in retrospect I was sort of working out my own issues things that I was too afraid to sort of acknowledge in my own life and um, he says when I wrote The Shining for instance the protagonist of The Shining is a man who has broken his son's arm who has a history of child beating who has beaten himself and as a young father with two children I was horrified by my occasional feelings Mm. of real antagonism towards my children won't you ever stop won't you ever go to bed and, um, you know, and I think he was also he was also struggling with his own alcoholism at the time. So, you know, this is a very personal book. It's so like him. It's funny because I didn't know any of that stuff about him when I first read it. But looking back, you're like, I, I know we always joke he writes about writers so much and he does. But if you look at all the traits of Jack Torrance, I think this is so much more akin to Stephen King himself than Bill Denborough yeah. or Ben Mears um, or Mike Noonan from Bag of Bones or any of these other guys. Like, although he's written a lot of writers, I think they tend to be, usually tend to be a little bit more stable than Jack Torrance. And I don't know, maybe in a way, Jack Torrance was the real king and someone like Ben Mears was what King was aspiring to be. And this might point to what is so, um, maybe one of the reasons he feels such antagonism towards the Kubrick version of the movie is because Stephen King, I think The Shining was a deeply personal novel to him Mm -hmm. and his first one. I mean, first deeply personal because I think uh, Carrie and Salem's Lot are both strong books, but I don't know if they're as personal. And I think that's what makes The Shining... A lot of authors, um, uh, like Robert McCammon, he like he has talked about um, uh, how this is a work of literature. That you know, um, The Shining is not a pop book. You know that uh, this is a very complex book about very complex people, and I think a lot of that has to do with the personal nature of it. Whereas in Kubrick, we'll talk about this later, but in Kubrick's version, um, you know, as great as that movie is, Jack Torrance in that movie is pretty one-dimensional, mm-hmm. and I think King probably took offense to that to a degree. I, I, I think what, what's really interesting about Jack Torrance and about his plight and the actual situation his, he's in is that it really could only come from the mind of like a, a writer who's actually struggled and, and who's actually been in those situations where he doesn't think he's going to succeed, which, to be fair, is every writer. Yeah. <laughs> like I think even, every, if every, even if they're famous. Even if they're famous. Yeah. Um, but there's that idea of you have this entirely you know, blank slate, you have an opportunity to do whatever you want to do it, which he thinks that he's going to be able to go to this hotel and write this Pulitzer Prize winning play. What happens when you have all the time in the world to do this and you're left to your own devices (laughs) and are you going to lean on your vices or are you actually going to deliver? And I think there's like a fear to that. Like even if I had all the time in the world, would I still be able to do and accomplish Mm -hmm. the things that I want to do? And I think that's kind of a scary thing when you're a writer. Um, I know for me, like I, 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 I don't even write anymore because of the idea of like that, just knowing that, right? Like, oh, like, you mean right? But like, like fiction. for fiction-wise, yeah, yeah. like just because there's that idea that like you will like what you know if if I had all even if I had all the time in the world would I still be able to do it? And I don't know. I don't. I don't think. And I and I almost don't want that situation because then you actually have no other excuse. Setting up for failure. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what's perfect about this book is that yes, as a writer, that's an, an issue for people as well. But I think that's a universal thing. I think mm-hmm. anybody left with their own devices. It's a scary moment when you're isolated like that and you have to be like, well, you know, I know I have a lot of free time right now. I want to get this done, this done, this done. 
and I find myself totally diverting and falling on, you watching know, movies. oh, I'm going to watch a movie or I'm going to eat all this food and da, 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 da. <laughs> yeah. And you know, seriously though, but like, I just I think, had the image of you with like a giant 12 foot sub in your room. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta eat all this food. Gotta eat the whole thing. Party Sorry. sub. <laughs> uh, but seriously, I think that that's a universal thing. I think that's why so many people actually connect with this because even when you have all the time in the world, you know, that's the scariest thing. Oh, totally. Uh, you know, when, when you actually have the ability to do everything you want to and you have to deliver. Yeah. Um, I think we've covered uh, some really awesome things about being a writer, about being an addict, about being a frustrated family man. Um, and something that's really interesting about The Shining is that, like I said, all that stuff is in there. And in the literary sense, the horror in it is, can be a metaphor or a manifestation of all that. But the ghosts, they're very real. The house itself is yeah. this demonic force. And that's interesting because nowadays I feel like uh, we've talked about this a lot amongst ourselves um, in the current boom of indie horror, not every movie, but a lot of movies, it's always like, oh, is the monster real? The Duke. It's like, oh, well, is it in their head or is it not? Exactly. It's metaphorical. And then, or then you have something where, where it's just, um, the monster is completely real or whatever. So I think The Shining is rare in that, like you said, it's very much a work of literature in that these things are real, but they are supposed to be manifestations, at least in a symbolic sense of, mm-hmm. of this. So is that, I guess I'm just curious about your guys' thoughts. Like, does that work for you? Is it a problem um, when compared to something like the the Kubrick version? One of the things that I find really interesting about The Shining is how, because um, I guess when you know when you mention about monsters being metaphorical, uh, that drives me crazy in a lot of horror because I feel like people can't get hurt, you know, mm-hmm. and I always want the threat of um, of uh, harm to be there because that offers like a sense of stakes, you know, and so when Halloran is like. Well, it's different for a child, and I think that's part of why his shining works. But, um, you know, in Halloran's, like, all you have to do is close your eyes and, you know, uh, force it away with your mind. Then, um, you know, that's all you need to do. But then I love that Stephen King subverts that with the lady in the tub. He tries to uh, force her away, but he can't. It's too strong, and it grabs him, and it chokes him, and it leaves marks on him. Mm -hmm. And I know that to a degree we can wonder whether or not Jack actually did do that. I think in the book um, it's pretty clear that it it is a real monster. Yeah. Whereas the movie, um, it's definitely more up in the air. But I do think that there is at least the tiniest seed of doubt in the book, The Shining, that maybe, just maybe, this is all within their heads. Um, I think that it's 98% literal, but when I was reading it, there were moments that, to me, you see a lot of psychosis in Jack very early on, um, which uh, is stuff that I think I'm more aware of now, knowing complaints about the movie, watching, you know, hearing so many people talk about the movie. Um, I think I think about those things when I read it from that perspective. So for me... um, I like that the idea of what's literal and metaphorical really blends together in um, the world of this because the thing that you are able to push away with your mind becomes real and can hurt you. And then that really changes the game, I think. And, and going back to the haunted house thing, I like that the haunted house is in itself kind of a physical being. You know what I mean? Um, and I, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think back on other famous haunted house stories like, like um, Hell House or... Uh, the haunting or the haunting of Hill House, whatever you want to call it. Do you guys think that the house itself being a character is like a, a pretty common trope or is that unique to King? I think it's a pretty common thing when, you, when you're when you dealing with haunted houses, absolutely. Um, it's funny because I know that <laughs> your wife, I feel like, posted a, a funny uh, 
comment the other day about searching for hotels in oh, yeah. New Orleans, like like yeah. um, searching for uh, hotels that aren't haunted, and it came up with no results. Yeah. Uh, I think it's <laughs> a universal is, thing. Again, I think, I'm ecstatic about. Like, yeah, <laughs> I, I think that it's a common thing, and I think that it's something that I love, and it's also something that kind of started in Salem's Lot with the Marston House is almost a character in itself, yeah. the way they describe it and how it's overlooking the town and everything. And I feel like this is just a, a, you know an extension of that and, uh, and a more of an exploration of that kind of thing, like the life that this um, building takes on. Well, it's the ideal medium for... I mean, it's the ideal medium for King because you're going to have this haunted house that is able to just create a million short stories for you know that that you can go you know that that he can cut, start to tell based on everything that happened in different rooms or in different you know different levels and different times and and so yeah I do think that by making the Overlook Hotel a character in itself it's it's just it's like a treasure chest for for King but that's more about like structure and format so much of this book is told through recollections. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chapters begin and we have Jack in bed remembering everything else that happened. Um, Like there's a chapter Night Thoughts and it's like Jack's in bed and then there is a very long chapter that is literally just him remembering things. And I believe this is also I mean I could be wrong. I don't remember this in Salem's Lot but uh, Stephen King always adds these little interstitials between paragraphs of italicized uh, parenthetical um, uh, you know, jabs of memory or thought mm-hmm. that are jumping into people's minds, and and to me, it's oh, and then you know, you'll you'll see it, and it's always uh, bits of dialogue from his past, or you know, if or or maybe it's the the ghost speaking because the ghosts seem to speak through memories and they manipulate your memories, and those sorts of issues uh, to me are really. Uh, emblematic of the larger structure where Stephen King seems to be, you know, so much of the horror is rooted in memory, both in Jack's life and in the hotel, and it's manifested through a book that is constantly jumping back in time, between time, with uh, characters. And it's kind of a perfect marriage, um, or sometimes it's a little imperfect, marriage of uh, metaphor and foreshadowing. Um, You know, one of the things I thought was actually interesting is how he layers the story with so many different visuals that are going to come into play of what how it informs the characters i mean you have like the boiler the wasp nest um the hotel itself um and in the clock in the lobby oh, yeah. I, I i think it it works i do think it gets overkill sometimes i mean literally on page 27 pages into the story uh, Watson says, I tell you, this whole place is going to go sky high someday, which is basically like <laughs> saying, you know, I mean, like, it, it, you know, you're basically just putting a sign on Jack's face that says, whoa, watch out for this guy. I mean, it's just, and for me, that, like, it, you know, King is so big on doing these, the, the, that sort of, that style of foreshadowing. And I, I think that for me, it works sometimes and then sometimes it doesn't. But um, I, I think that to Randall's point about having these like internal monologues like it he just King just goes wild with it like and, and you know you have a million of these different things um, throughout those internal thoughts of just like those last lines that you that we always talk about like you know it's like it's like well like, you'll never see him again or something like that and you see that all the time happening in this book and I think it's great that he's actually able to 
um, use these short stories, uh, weave these things into the book the way that he wasn't necessarily able to do with Carrie, where he felt like, well, if I have to tell a story about something prior or after, it was from another publication, and mm-hmm. there was a way to break it apart. This seems much more natural in terms of being able to do that in this book. Uh, and as where Salem's Lot, we had a lot of building of the universe and of this world. Now we have like this intense character study Absolutely. of these three characters alone in this hotel. Yeah, because in Salem's Lot, you had this giant ensemble. And if you needed a story told, you could be like, well, I'm going to go to this person within this world who can tell that story. I can jump around like that. But here, the perspectives are so limited to um, Wendy, Danny, Jack, and Halloran um, that it's like uh, memory is really important and you really have to dig deep into the minds of these characters. And also, too, because Jack, and, and in a different extent, Danny, because they do have this connection to the hotel... It's a good vehicle for him to yeah, be able to go back in time in a certain way. Do you? Because you guys have read more recently than me. D- structurally, because we do have holler in chapters outside the hotel, right? Where mm-hmm. he's coming to rescue them or, or yeah, thinking about them. Outside of that, it is it pretty much confined. To, is is the structure like is it all in the hotel like the whole time? Uh, for the most part, I mean, they're, they're, I mean, you do get out with like Halloran occasionally, but and they go down to the town. Mm-hmm. Um, that's uh, the Sidewinder, Sidewinder uh, occasionally, which is some great chapters. But I mean, like Randall said, it really is like the mind is is really your way of getting out of like the the, the kind of confined setting, and yeah. you're able to go to some some great places. And like to Max point, um, it really is a deep character study. I mean, like I mentioned before with the sort of metaphors, but those metaphors allow give agency to a lot of these deep thoughts. Like even like I mean, one of my favorite chapters is when Jack's on the roof. Um, and it's right at the beginning when they first start actually doing work and actually living alone up there. And it's he's it's called the wasp nest, the wasp the wasps. The wasps. <laughs> um, and and, th- and that that whole chapter is great. I mean, because he's you really get into his head. And I mean, look at look, this is one chapter or um, this one passage that uh, they actually have where he said uh, King writes, and yet through it all he hadn't felt like a son of a bitch. He hadn't f- felt mean. He had always regarded himself as Jack Torrance, a really nice guy who was just going to have to learn how to cope with his temper someday before it got him in trouble. Um, and, and, you know, it, you're, he's able to really get in the heads of these people and where, how they, th- they see themselves and how mm-hmm. they see others. And because it really becomes like this kind of uh, chess game between the characters that are, that are stuck in the hotel and how the perceptions take into place for that. Because you have Wendy who's always constantly juggling whether or not she, you know, she's she loves her husband or hates her husband or fears her husband or even fears Danny. I mean, mm-hmm. she there's there's a lot of struggle, internal struggle that you don't get from her. Um, so I, I I do think like yeah, inside the mind is is absolutely crucial in this book. When he does, it is funny because I guess this isn't the official term for it, but he does have these um, I guess workman interludes almost. It's like yeah, Jack Jack trying to remove this wasp's nest or just working on the hotel, and it does two things for me. It get it a lot. It, it gets us inside the head of these characters in a way that previous King novels have not. Because when you are working on a task, I feel like you are. And that yeah. speaks to the isolation. Exactly, of the book. yeah. And uh, and also, <laughs> I mean, I don't know, never, they never explicitly say this, but maybe it's because I'm not good at these things myself. I, I, I get the idea that he, like, kind of is not a great, like, caretaker as far as no, construction no. and stuff goes and, and just tasks. And that just adds the frustration. Like, he's not, he's not writing. 
he's dealing with all these other demons, and he's not even do, really doing the job he's supposed to be doing either, so it well, just, I, like, makes it just, uh, yeah. I just love when they're like, yeah, yeah, we're going to have you uh, shingle the roof. And he's like, wait, what? Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, shingle this roof? Like, well, I remember we all laughed in the... Um, and when we watched the miniseries, because it literally looked like he had just punched a hole in the ceiling, yeah. <laughs> like the roof of the, the, the yeah. overlook. Uh, another thing that really struck me in terms of structure is um, repetition. There's so much repetition. I think that also speaks to themes of memory. But I love, and I actually started to find it very unsettling, the use of memory, the way certain lines from people's past keep coming back, like um, when Wendy thinks of her father and uh, who giveth this bride, I do. Over and over, she thinks of her wedding day and of her father leading her there. And her father passed, I think, soon after her wedding. And it, like, haunts her in this really weird way. Well, it has, like, a lot of... it's, it's It goes into King's things where, like, the parents are a bunch of assholes. Yeah. Then, you know. I know. I was thinking it's, like... I feel like Wendy is sort of a precursor to Pet Cemetery's Rachel. Oh, totally. Um, because, but Rachel's parents are like monsters. Oh, Danny's a precursor to Elf. Ellie, yeah. Uh, also. Um, yeah. But, you know, but it doesn't Jack, his father is like a, a total like psychopath also. Yeah, right? yeah. Like yeah. a hardcore drunk yeah. psycho. But yeah, and it's like, uh, but yeah, that idea, that repetition of like, who giveth this bride? I do. And then, and the red death hell sway over all. Like the way that line keeps coming back and the mm-hmm. fact that Jack doesn't even know where it's coming from, but it also plays, and because it plays to this idea of um of uh there are events being played out over and over again inside the hotel the woman is in the tub dying over and over again you know the party the costume party the mask party is happening over and over and over again like these things exist in the world of the hotel and um you know in jack is in a way sort of a repetition of grady like he is another alcoholic who's been brought in who's being driven crazy by these things and so those ideas i love how he's able to work in the idea of memory into the fact fabric and structure of the book because I think that really highlights the themes and it also was a huge step like Mac was saying like this is such a huge structural step forward for Stephen King and um and especially he was moving into the stand which I think you know in many ways combines uh the ensemble nature of um Salem's Lot with sort of the more internal isolate isolated um you know, life of the mind mm-hmm. that we get here because, in, you know, because in the stand we get, you know, all of those things sort of together. The repetition of him, uh, I love one thing is the, the aspirin. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. The Excedrin is, is that's like a really unsettling detail. Yeah. And just the way he wipes his hand, his mouth oh, with yes. his hand all the time and then he starts bleeding at one point because of it. I started doing that when I was reading. I was too. Just to see what <laughs> it was like. Just to go was, get the feeling of like what it was. Is it like the, it's, it's chapped, I guess, or he keeps, I, uh, yeah. Yeah, it, it's very weird. It's unsettling in the sense that you, I just imagine it's like, yeah, it is chapped and he's like starting to bleed a little bit. And like, because I think he says that there are blood, like there's. Yeah, yeah because I think he was doing it so much. And I, you know, it also touches on, I think, the addict's plight. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think when you're struggling with addiction, especially if you're left in a place where your mind isn't occupied, like where your mind has the freedom to roam, I think that um, you do start to think about the thing as Danny calls it, the bad thing, the drinking, you know, it's like, there's so, it's that idea of like, just one drink, just one drink, just one drink. And the, the, and like the, the, I think sort of the journey of the addict is to constantly repeatedly shut that down, like over and over again. And that's sort of, you know, part of being an addict. And that's something that we're seeing here is this repetition, this like the idea blooms and then it gets put away and it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger until it explodes. Yeah. There's a great, um, when you when it really starts to boil, 
um, or starts to boil, to use the boiler metaphor, um, <laughs> is when that great, again, it's a great scene when they're in Sidewinder and he decides to call Ullman. Oh, that's such and a great scene. Like, I, I so wish that they would have been able to include this with Nicholson because I pictured Nicholson doing this, but um, there's, uh, there's a great uh, section that's in the uh, Talking to Mr. Ullman chapter and, and it goes right into that, that, that struggle that he has of like, mm-hmm. is what's happening to me or like, why am I having these thoughts? And um, they they also give a really good insight to just the idea of addiction and alcoholism, but um, King writes, uh, once during the drinking phase, Wendy had accused him of desiring his own destruction, but not possessing the necessary moral fiber to support a full-blown death wish. So he manufactured ways in which other people could do it, lopping a piece of time Lopping had a piece of time of himself and their family. Could it be true? Was he afraid somewhere inside that the Overlook might just be what he needed to finish his play and generally collect up his shit and get it together? Was he blowing the whistle on himself? Please, God, no. Don't let it be that way. Please. That that internal struggle, I mean, that's like just the tip of the iceberg. But mm-hmm. when it starts getting in there, they have it does have those italicized like jabs to the, the the mind that he just keeps going like wait where did that come from like wait yeah. why did that come? and that, that's eerie yeah because then you do wonder again going to your point before is this the hotel doing this or is it himself that, that that's always been there and i after reading this like twice and seeing the movies and all this other stuff i still don't have the answer like, right i really don't like, right and even if that wasn't stephen king's like point from the outset it, yeah. it, it points i think any book that can sort of um summon that kind of ambiguity through just well-sketched characters and sort of, um, you know, uh, such a thorough examination of themes like that, I think that points to it being a really great book. So even if, and we'll talk about this more, but I think even if The Shining isn't the scariest book ever, it like rereading this, I almost wonder if it might be one of his most realized books. And, and I'm glad that he doesn't, you know, and this is going to play more into stru- like the actual structure, um, I'm glad that he didn't lean too heavily on the articles this time. Mm-hmm. You know, like, even though there was obviously a tempt, uh, there, it was tempting to do that with the scrapbook itself, which yeah. seemed like, well, the minute he finds it, I was like, oh my God, it's going to go into this whole, like, Carrie-esque mm-hmm. sort of uh, digression. And he only does it, like, a, a little bit. Um, but I think that was so smart because it, it just would have taken out, you, you have to be in their minds. Yeah. And, and I think that's so important um, with this book. But, you know, and on that structural bent too, I actually it's it's a the scrapbook is a great way to do exposition yeah. because it's also intertwined with the story itself and with um, the mystery yeah. because one of the freakiest parts of the of the book for me when I was reading was when he's going through that scrapbook. Um, because this sort of points to this idea that he's not alone when he's reading it, even though he is alone. But he finds the scrapbook. We're reading all these articles. We're, we're learning about all the characters that we're going to see when the ghosts come out. You know, we're learning about the mobsters, Horace Derwin, um, you know, all the different uh, ghosts of the Overlook. We're hearing about them through these, and we have to remember them because, you know, I think even as you're reading them, you know that they're going to pop up later. Absolutely. And, um, but it's when he finds the article about the killed mobsters and just somebody had written and they took their balls with them too and jack just goes whose is this yes like yeah. who wrote that yeah. he, i love he loves that. the mob the like mobsters getting tied up with like paranormal powers like, <laughs> yeah because like in sales a lot also isn't it like it's huey, huey marston or hubie huey? yeah, yeah. Huey was yeah. A, it was a, a, a like a hit a former hitman I, don't, yeah. I mean it's it's cool i like i like that idea I, um one of the the things to your point also with uh using his exposition is um, I love how, again, going into the foreshadowing, but it's it's also in the internal monologue. 
King is able to kind of create these short stories with reflections also with like Halloran's mm-hmm. uh, thoughts. Like one of my favorite uh, parts is all the, the foreshadowing that Halloran has when he's back in Florida thinking about the hotel. Mm-hmm. And he's just, you know, this guy's just sitting there. Yeah. But he's going through every different thing and reconfirming all the stuff that Jack had read in that scrapbook. So again, it goes into the, 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 the thoughts about the echoes and the, um, the repetition, and then also the, in the internal monologue, and then, in, and then back into, it, it's, it just feels so natural. Like it right. I, I never really get to the point that, oh, all this information is just being dished out just for, you know, for information's sake. No, like there's a purpose to it, and it's very, um, it, 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 there's a finesse to how mm-hmm. it all bleeds out. And, and the way that, the one thing I will always give King credit is that he is so good at orchestrating um, the the tension and the detail, so that when it does hit, it's at the most maximum level. Like you're like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, that that is a great callback, and and a lot of that comes in to the the to Halloran's thoughts because those those don't actually come into play until like I think 127. Yeah, it's later in the pages book, in the book or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I mean. That's one of my favorite aspects of this book, for sure. Yeah. I think it's sort of impossible in a lot of ways to talk about The Shining without talking about the characters because there's so there's so few of them and they're so important to the story. And so I think all of this just sort of genuine... We've already talked about Jack a lot, but maybe in uh, as we move into our zeros and... Hello, Bill Band here from the All 80s Movies Podcast to tell you about Factor Meals. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80s movies 50 to get your 50% off today. Villains? I'm gonna have to kill this fucking clown. Welcome to the Losers Club, asshole! <laughs> this is the section where we uh, talk about characters, both big and small. Uh, we've already discussed a lot about Jack because it's, you know, like we said, it's hard to talk about the book without discussing him. But uh, let's all kind of go around and share which characters really stood out to us and maybe if there's a character that fell a little flat, you know, how come? Um, I'll start. I, I'm i actually really drawn to um, uh, Horace Derwent, uh, the <laughs> sort of Howard Hawks figure. <laughs> Um, I know why that was funny because I, I didn't think he'd be the first guy we're talking about. Oh, I know it is a little. No, weird. no, no, it's great. I think no, it's great. Uh, w- trust me, uh, listeners, we will touch on Danny and Wendy, but I really, <laughs> I really have to talk about Horace Derwent. Um, no, I just I found him um, a very. He's a figure I sort of forgot about uh, upon this reread, um, and you know he's this kind of Howard Hawks 
figure, uh, this film producer, billionaire, uh, business eccentric, who... Um, oh, you mean Howard Hughes? Wait, who is Howard Hawks? Howard Hawks directed the original thing. Yeah. Or, or produced, director, he produced well, he, directed. he directed Scarface also, which Howard Hughes, I believe, produced. So yeah. I think that was... It's, mm. um, What's The Aviator about? For, for all the, <laughs> that's, that's, that's Howard, Howard Hughes. Hughes. Okay. And uh, I'm thinking uh, of Howard Hughes. All our fact checkers back home. Yeah. I hope yeah. you're looking this up. Um, I saw Scorsese's idiot either. <laughs> but but um, uh, is a cooler name. But I yeah, kind of I find him to be sort of an interesting um, figure of cruelty here. Uh, during the party scene, when Jack is sort of at the masquerade ball, the way he's demeaning the man in the dog costume while also just casually groping the women next to him, he sounds like such a despicable figure, and like he clearly takes such joy in sort of torturing people but people seem to love to be tortured by him Mm -hmm. so he's to me sort of an he's sort of a face of villainy um in this uh book which is interesting because jack is ultimately the real monster but you know or well jack becomes that but there's sort of this idea that the hotel is evil but i feel like if there is a face for that evil it's in horace and Mm -hmm. what i guess is interesting that the book um only sort of hints at is that derwent um Either either there is sort of an age-old evil that lived within the hotel that also um, kind of took over Derwent, or Derwent brought that evil with him, which I find to be very interesting because he seems to me to be sort of a very malevolent personality. I th- I want to say that he probably brought it with him just because he's... he's uh, well, I don't know. I guess just because you're an eccentric billionaire film producer doesn't yeah. mean you're automatically evil or anything like that. I don't know, it reminds me a little bit of, uh, what's the guy from The Godfather? Jack Waltz, or whatever his name is. <laughs> like oh, horse. Godfather? <laughs> yeah, the Godfather guy who wakes up the horse the horse head. Well, he's a different kind of evil. Uh, but uh, well, I think we'll all find out when we get that, um, I'm, well, I'm sure it'll be a well-received prequel, The Overlook Hotel, that um, Warner Brothers <laughs> is trying to create. Wait, really? Oh, yeah, they're, oh, gonna, they're doing this. a... Uh, a prequel to The Shining, and I can't wait to see. What if he's the main character? All the mysteries we solved, finally. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. He probably would, though. I he's mean, the main character. It's just him, like, all right, like I want, I want three hot women sent up to my room, and yeah, uh, right yeah. away. Well, the <laughs> yeah, climax yeah. is just me, like Roger, get on your force and suck my, uh, and then, and then it's, is it he ends the, the movie. Is he the guy in Kubrick's version who's getting sucked yeah. off by the dog yes. man yeah. or whatever? And that's what I think. That's one of the reasons that I think the dog man is, and we'll get into that when we discuss the movie. But just very briefly, I think the reason there's two different reasons the dog man um, blowjob scene in the Kubrick <laughs> version is so scary. Is one, it's randomness for people who don't know yeah. the history. And two, I think that it that simple image very much broadens the idea of who Horace Derwent was mm-hmm. um, in one image. And we never see him otherwise in the Kubrick version. But when we see those two characters, we know from the book that we know the larger history and that implication that, um, you know, Derwent was, uh, you know, having his, having his way with everyone and that there was sort of... You know, but that also there was a certain amount of malevolence to it. Mm-hmm. So. What makes Derwin even more evil is when you actually realize later on that the dog, the, the guy's name is Roger. That's yeah. so like the the when he's <laughs> the in the dog suit, like his fate is, and this is going to go more into the cemetery, but I'll bring it up here just because we're talking about him. His fate is what's actually terrifying because he's you know forced to do this dog costume by um, Derwin, and it inevitably becomes his eternal fate. So when Danny actually opens the door and sees him just like, you know, obviously he's scared by by Roger in the dog costume. And I think at that point he's actually assumed like dog-like characteristics because he's able to like, he has like weird eyes and everything else. But 
there's a point where he's chasing his own tail. Yeah. Which means yeah. that this character, the soul of Roger, is just eternally, like, for eternity, going mm-hmm. to just be this dog roaming around the halls of this hotel. And that makes Derwin even more evil, in my opinion. Yeah. Where you just, like, it's terrifying. Like, well, yeah, imagine that he's just been doing that even when the family doesn't notice it. Just imagine him, like, exactly. on another floor while the family's deep asleep, just running around chasing his own tail, and it becomes even Which is so freaky. More frightening. So creepy. Because these ghosts aren't sitting around saying, okay, tomorrow night we're going to yeah. scare Danny. <laughs> you know? That's not happening. These ghosts are, are there forever. So. They're just having a fun time. Yeah. Do you guys think with those ghost characters and, um, you know, kind of being stuck in this cyclical sort of thing um you mentioned the masquerade ball and oh is he um is he really that malevolent malevolent or whatever else do you think any of it is amplified by the hotel or or are these characters really i mean is this like the shit they were doing in, in real life do you think i mean the way they set it up especially when when jack's reading through the uh, the old notebooks and whatnot i feel like these are just some bad people yeah who are already bad who mm-hmm. stumbled upon an evil place and they come by each it. other kind yeah. of thing a side note: Can we? Can uh, there be a punk band called Dogman Blowjob? <laughs> <laughs> there has to be. One. Yeah, is a there phrase that was. Uh, yeah. um, so, what other characters stand out uh, now that we've touched on some of the esoteric <laughs> ghost characters? Um, uh, who else uh, stands out here? Um, someone I want to talk about, not to open a can of worms or anything, is uh, is uh, Hollerin. Yeah. Just because when I was a kid, I loved that character. I thought yeah. it was so cool. I love that he came back and saved the day. We'll touch on it later. I hate how he got <laughs> axed right when he shows up in the Incubus version, but he was just he was just kind of this cool mentor, and I, I feel like he was him and Danny are probably the the two genuinely good people in it. That mm-hmm. Wendy is too, but she's somewhat of a doormat, you know. Not that it makes her a bad person, but I, I feel like um, she's an abused wife. Yeah, like they're the Danny and uh, Holler and to me are very heroic and and like unquestionably heroic in the way in a way that other characters aren't. However, I know. He has gotten some criticism, as ha- as has uh, John Coffey and the Green Mile and a lot of other um, speedy uh, and uh, the Talisman. Exactly, a lot, a lot of other uh, Black King characters have been accused of being the magical Negro, the mm-hmm. the man who's there just to help the white the you know the white protagonist or whatever else. And I I don't know I don't know if it's because Holler and I, I read it so young and he's kind of just in, been embedded in my mind as being an awesome character, and I love Scatman Crowther's uh, portrayal of him. I even love Melvin Van Peebles' portrayal of him in the remake. I, just, I never saw him that way, and I he's still a character that really resonates with me just for his heroics and how crafty he is, but I, I, w- I just wanted to know if you guys had any thoughts on that. I think he definitely fits that definition. Because, you, so, you know, yeah. when I first read it years ago, that wasn't necessarily... Uh, I guess a definition that was really floating around that much. I really felt like, like it was it when, say, um, yeah. oh, what the hell was it called? The Legend of Bagger Bag- Vance yeah. with mm, Will Smith is when yeah. it really started to come to the pop culture forefront. Uh-huh. But reading it now, especially again, I can definitely see where that definition is. It's, it's that um, unintentional, yeah. uh, right? I don't think he went out to like to do this, King did, but I think that he kind of falls into the tropes of what would become the, yeah, the, uh, the magic. He does the, the qu- in quotes, jive talking kind yes. of thing and he does that where he tries to like you know put yourself in the mind of a, of a, an African American who's in his I guess 60s I guess around the time of this book yeah what he, but you know it just doesn't it doesn't read well it feels it's, like a white guy writing <laughs> yes. um, yeah. his idea of um, a jive talking African American from like that pitchfork review <laughs> oh gosh like um, the Miles Davis pitchfork review Mike put that in the reader reference oh yeah we'll it. put that in the, you well, can't find it and, and it's funny too because you look at a character like Mike Hanlon from it yeah also also a black man who 
it, it doesn't feel obviously there are a lot of racial themes that come up with Mike and how he gets antagonized by Henry Bowers and Holleran, who also makes an appearance in it, which we can talk about in, in King's Dominion. He you have to bring up race, obviously, if it's in it, especially if it's if it's a black guy in the 50s, like, yeah, the, those sort of discriminations, I mean, they're still around today and they were even around more so back then. But with Hanlon, for some reason, he do, King doesn't feel like he it doesn't feel like King is having to try to talk like a black man or whatever yeah. and hollering it does Hanlon feels like a real kid he doesn't yeah. feel like he's just, he just feels like a real kid yeah and, 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 like, and I do think that King's intentions have always been the right place when it yeah, comes to race he's always, he, and just equality in general I mean look at what we talked about earlier but how, sometimes it feels like he tries a little too hard to be like oh like yeah no I, I understand the black man how he talks and everything and, mm-hmm. and, um, and like I said I, hollering to me and last time I read The Shine was a long time ago so maybe like Justin said that term wasn't in my mind mm-hmm. Um, although I have never seen like that, what you guys are saying makes sense to me. Well, I mean, if you compare this to something like uh, Ian Fleming's novel *Live and Let Die*, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is that Baron? Uh, yeah, he the, the way he writes African Americans in that is downright offensive. Yeah, <laughs> and I think Ian Fleming had some other demons. So. Was Ian Fleming? Racist. Uh, that's yeah. we can just go ahead and say it for the most part. I think he was a little slightly misogynistic to be, to be polite yeah. and. Yeah, you read his books where he portrays Asians or African Americans or even Jamaicans. It's just, uh, it's a brutal read. <laughs> women and people. Of there's color. a lot of uh, misspellings and there's a lot of apostrophes. In it's just. It's, well, I believe uh, there's a there's a clause in uh, Fleming's uh, will that said uh, Idris Elba was never to play. Uh, like, that's right. <laughs> that's why he, they, you know he's always they've always, they've always been. King picked him up for no, the joking. Yeah, 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 no joke. Um, well, that no, was absolutely joking. But um, I, I will say I I, I Dick Halloran's probably um i I saw him almost like um there's like a life raft for the in this in this uh story like every time i would switch over to his perspective i was so overjoyed like i was just like oh my god thank god we're getting out of the hotel and i like what he's doing like i Mm -hmm. like this stuff that like his like his like lifestyle that he's doing like he the way he taught like the way he interacts with people he always gives everyone the benefit of the doubt Mm -hmm. like he's 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 just a good person and um and he's and like yeah he admits that he's like he's like god why am i doing this for these people I just met. Yeah. like I love that That's too cool. yeah. but he knows that like he he can't live his life without helping these people and like I do love that you know granted both films really do a good job in painting like how long and far mm-hmm. he has to go to get back to the overlook but in this one I love that he like there's like one where he like misses the flight and then has oh, to go yeah. back to the next day and like it's just like little things that they keep adding into that and then the people that he meets and then how he has to even request time off of work um, you know, with his boss and, and how he's, you just see a little bit more of his lifestyle mm-hmm. in this than, than, than you do in any of the other movies. And like, he felt like a real character to me. And like, I, I, I get, I definitely get the criticisms on that end. Um, and, and especially just in, in the dialogue, which I think Scatman Crothers does a really good job in being able to kind of suppress down to make, make it mm-hmm. a little more of a, a palpable and actual real character. But, um, I just, yeah, I, 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 I personally, I mean, obviously, because look, we're five white guys just talking about this, but I, like, I don't think that there is, I, 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 I think King Ransom is, is such a hero mm-hmm. that it kind of, it, there, it does over, um, it, it like definitely um, triumphs over that, that, that sort of like stereotype. I was going to say then, it sounds like then the overall assessment from you guys who've read it more recently is, is that it's, it's not in his, um, his internal character and his actions more so in the It's a very the superficial thing. It's, yeah. it's, in, it's in the dialogue, yeah. specifically. you need the character for the book to work. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah. in, that, in that regard, the character needs to be there. I definitely think it hits upon the stereotypes. And it's not it's, it's not the same as maybe with The Green Mile, where it's like, oh, he 
he ends up dying for you know yeah. with with hollering specifically here it's it sounds like it's more of an issue of the the dialect the as dialect a, as, a, yes. as opposed to anything that happens or he does yeah and it's tough too um we're not i'm not forgiving anything i mean obviously in terms of but you got to think of when was this written mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what was the political current state of the world at the time and you know i mean you have to look at it through that lens it's like when you watch the original king kong you know, or, or you know, and you have to look at it from okay. Well, yeah, these special effects were great at the time. Like this is why this was such a big deal. You have to look through it through the lens at which at the time at which it was written as well. Because um, reading it now, I was really kind of like jolted by reading these, some of these things that he was saying, or or just you know references and whatnot. It just was like, oh, I was like, I don't think you even need to say that these days, like at all. Like you know, you need to bring that up. So it's very interesting um, to to see that character. Let's talk about Danny. I think Danny is um, a really interesting character in the Stephen King world, um, and I think there's a lot of questions. I think nobody would deny the fact that he, Stephen King, making him five years old, <laughs> so young. I know he's so young. I, I, I almost wonder: is there? Does he need to be that young? He could be eight or nine or ten. Yeah, he could also be forty-five, um, <laughs> based on how they write him in this book. I mean, Jesus and, you know, they Christ! Touch, they touch on uh, the doctor's comment on Danny's, uh, you know expansive speech qualities Mm -hmm. and his logic and his ability (laughs) to like speak like an adult um and i think that that's something that everyone would agree is a little bit uh weird but stephen king does acknowledge that the parents acknowledge how they feel like they're talking to a little man sometimes (laughs) and um but uh, and then there's also sort of he acknowledges uh, it too yeah danny does like man torrents i mean like just to not to jut in too much but there is a part that i did underline last night because i thought this is a really interesting um, argument in that favor because I do think like a lot of the times when they mention the doctor and mm-hmm. the parents saying like I don't understand what the hell's going on with this yeah. like, it feels like kind of like a write off to be able to like get away from like not really knowing how to write for a five or six year old but um, he does say and suddenly Danny had one of those flashes of understanding that frightened him most of all it was like a sudden glimpse of, glimpse of some incomprehensible machine that might be safe or might be deadly dangerous he was too young to know which he was too young to understand and and I and I think that plays into that, that feeling like he he has these powers and these these this elevated uh, height of reasoning because he has a lot of thoughts that almost seem like I wouldn't even like none of us would have had until we're like thirty five <laughs> years old and have hindsight which was probably around the you know it's like the age of, of King so I, I think that you know it's good that King makes those strides but. It still doesn't sell me like on the, the fact that this kid's five or six years old. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily even lazy or bad writing in terms of how to write a kid because I think he went about a deliberate way of doing it because, like you said, he points out the fact that everybody around him is like, "Wow, well, you talk like a like a man, not a little five year old boy." <laughs> because I mean, years later when he does Cujo, he definitely writes that little I forgot the boy Tad Tad as, Tad. as, as, as a little Tad. I, I I can't remember, but it, he, he writes Tad as a little boy, like you believe he's a little boy living in a small town of Castle Rock. And King was coked out of his mind. He doesn't even remember writing Kujo. <laughs> so I feel like he knows how to write specific characters. I think he just went about this in a strange way. You say he, he knows right. how to write uh, kids when he's on cocaine? Yeah. <laughs> Which is crazy <laughs> to me. Get him back on Channel White. Well, no, and, and I agree with you because when I was first reading it, and I talked to Mike about this all the time, is that, you know, 
I just I, I was blown away by the writing for Danny. I was really confused. I was like, who is this supposed to be? And I think uh, the problem is is that I was basing it wholly off of Kubrick's version of mm-hmm. Danny, yeah. which is a very much childlike Danny. He, he, he doesn't, doesn't talk really talk like an adult. Yeah. He doesn't talk a lot. So seeing this version, just kind of saying these things and having these inner monologues that are, you know, I don't even have discussions with myself about myself in my head that way Danny's doing it. <laughs> no. You know, it's crazy. But it's all about how Danny has the shine and is also talking to this character that, you know, could be a future, you know, him. <laughs> you know, and it's like maybe it's that kind of, you know, conversation that's going on because he's so in tune with that. I also like how Stephen King does create sort of a subtle mythology for um, like a reason, like a almost supernatural reasoning for why Danny could have the shining. And that's the, when Wendy remembers giving birth to him and she thought he didn't have a face and it was because he had the call over his, uh, his face. And um, that to me, I think I, I actually, I kind of just love that little subtle nod towards maybe there's something special, you know, in the big, and that's a call back to that old edition of the The shining with the blank face. Oh yeah. Mm That's yeah. a, that's funny. I never realized yeah. that because I just reading the book was, again. Uh, I was like, oh, what's the call? That's a neat idea. Yeah, I will say um, that totally makes sense. Like how that you know Danny's uh, maturity can be jarring. There is something refreshing though, and King does this a lot. And you guys touched on this in Salem's lot with Mark Petrie, who's a lot a lot older than Danny, but. I do think King writes resourceful kids really well yeah. without them being cutesy. Like yeah. so many writers, mm. when they have the you know the the smart kid, they're very precocious and kind of annoying. And yeah. I like that. I love and he does this in so many novels. I love that for King when it's a resourceful kid, they're just kind of scrappy. And if they get bullied or whatever, that they kind of just are like, you know what, fuck it, I'm gonna keep doing my thing. I'm just gonna yeah. keep on going forward. It's it's almost like it's almost like the opposite of like the Jerry Maguire kid or something like that. <laughs> the human head weighs how many pounds? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. I, I have a you know. There's there's some other sections also where he he realizes that the situation's unfair mm-hmm. to, to, for him being a kid because you know the, the, when all this stuff is happening and his father is acting like an asshole and his mother doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> He's just like, kind of like, hey, I'm just a kid. Like, like why sucks. is this stuff yeah. happening? Like, you know, like there's another section, and that's you know, keep on rereading all these different parts. But, you know, in, on like later on in the Snowbound chapter, uh, he's he's running around. And he's like, in the Overlook, all things had a sort of life. It was as if the whole place had been wound up with a silver key. The clock was running. The the, the clock was running. He was the key. Danny thought sadly. Tony had warned him just as he had let things go on. I'm just five, and that's the italicized in our internal monologue. He cried to some half you know felt presence in the room doesn't it make any difference that i'm just five and i and and i love that king did that and especially towards the end um because you do have to realize you do forget that this is all happening to just this little kid that has no idea what the world is about like and not to mention the way that we learn about him like he's clearly been shifted around his schools he's probably never even had like a real friend um and abused it he's been abused at home like he has had the worst like you know (laughs) life growing up so it is cool that he's kind of self-aware about it having said that my i did wonder like there's some things that he does that are questionable like why does he play around with things in the hotel like if he knows that these are supposed to be like um mm-hmm. that if he's been previously warned that these are going to be like, oh it's curiosity yeah. it is curiosity yeah. as a kid but there's there's a point though that where it, like i understand why he goes in the room because like halloran teases him on it but there is parts where he like knows that like for example like the clock in the lobby like mm-hmm. he knows that this is like that this is going to be like something that like it could be like a Pandora's box that opens things up because he has the hindsight to do it um 
so like why does he do that and then also just one more question is which I guess like kind of like goes into the logic of the story like why does the hotel like continue to send him messages like why does he see the red rum thing well, why does he see like it, it, like why what does the hotel first of all what does the shine. hotel want from him either though I think it's because his his shine is so powerful that they want um, him as a, as a yeah like yeah. Uh, um, Grady at one point says that he wants to um, that Danny could be very helpful to the powers of the hotel mm-hmm. so they, they're helping him to just descent into the hotel well I think like some Jack. of that might be Tony as well uh, yeah I think 99% of it's Tony I don't think that the hotel's purposely showing him the gunshot. Like, why would they want to scare him away if they want him? Do you know what I mean? I yeah. think that um, it's also very strange, too, because they if they really want Danny, then why do they have Jack trying to kill him? Yeah, exactly. So, it, it, I mean, that's a whole well, other no, thing. Well, no, but the because thing is, it, you have to be, well, he has to be dead for the hotel to have him, though. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. Well, there you go. Good night, everybody. <laughs> we'll talk to you next week. No, but um, I, I did want to bring up with uh, another character, though. Sorry to, you know, we'll, we'll, there's plenty of Danny in here. We'll definitely want to keep talking about So it's like an ecto container unit. Uh, yeah, yeah basically right. it is. Like, this is the point where you lose all the listeners. Like, man, they even get the shot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, no, but I think it's an honest question. Because even he says, though, that Tony's gone at some point like he tells Wendy that he's like oh no Tony like left like, he's yeah gone. well I think <laughs> he's, he's, he's jump, got a rucksack he's jump ship he's, he's going back I to Maine I think the more that he stays at the hotel the more the more the hotel is aware of Danny and Danny's presence is that they start making it harder for him to communicate with Tony which is, yeah. is how I looked at it yeah it's um, actually correct yeah right. I think uh, another really interesting character for me was absolutely Wendy yeah yeah because yeah. yeah because the two ver- televised version and the film version of her is very uh, kind of a singular note. Um, I loved her character in the book. You just got so much more of her. Yeah. And growing up with the film version, and you know, I love Shelley Duvall in that. But it is she is not that kind of character. She's yeah. not. I mean, she's a doormat in one sense in the fact that she's been, you know, in a in a kind of an abusive relationship, possibly with her her family. Obviously, like her mother's overbearing, and her. Um, but I think that. Watching her pr- try to protect Danny uh, on multiple accounts during the book, um, you know, I had Shelley Duvall in my head when I was reading it, and then I slowly kept thinking more mm-hmm. and more of the Rebecca De Mornay performance because I just feel like it's it's definitely a stronger person. I mean, you know, they're going after Jack and throwing him into that, you know, uh, the locker, locker, the freezer, yeah. and you know, she's carrying a knife and she's very protective of him the whole time, and 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 constantly is bringing up like, hey, if you do one more thing. We're mm-hmm. gone. Yeah. And I think that she would leave if he did do something like that, you know? And that there is something to be said about, once again, use that word, the cyclical nature of abuse. Because, and, you know, and I know doormat, I brought that word up, and I, and I, I know that could be insulting somewhat. But um, there is something to be said for, like Max said, abuse does have this way of giving you Stockholm Syndrome and, and making you not see that it's there and making you stay. But at a certain point, she, she does the threshold gets crossed for her. She does want to leave him. And I mean, there are people who stay with their partners their entire lives and never realize that. And, and they're not and without like supernatural, you know, causes and everything. And so at a certain point, she does turn into kind of a, a protector and she does do the right thing by her child. Um, which, so it's funny. I feel like I'm changing my opinion on her as we're going on. Cause at first I was kind of like, Oh, whatever. She just does this or that. She's somewhat static, but I guess she's not in a way. Maybe she could be, one of the more dynamic characters because she does uh, go through that shit. Well, she, I mean, it's, it, a lot of it's so internal. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem that you can't really convey on film. And this is mm-hmm. why, you know, yes. you know, Kubrick 
had her as is I mean well no Kubrick went a totally like different method different way with her <laughs> yeah. uh, which yeah. is why I think like, I think that's a large part of why Poor King, Shelley and King doesn't like the movie yeah. because yeah. she I mean he called out that that role specifically but in the book I, I found her internal thoughts to be the most um, important mm-hmm. in, in the in the entire book even over Danny and Jack because <laughs> she seems to be the um, the judge in um, in this of being able to kind of see what's go- like you're like I felt like her vision was the 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 the, the difference between Jack's like um, uh, nut bar uh, sort of uh, <laughs> lifestyle and then Danny's kind of confused psychic uh, visions. Mm-hmm. You had Wendy that's right in the middle who is kind of the logical she figures examination that's able to look between the, the two of them. So every time I would go into her head, it was my way of like saying like, what's really actually going on in this hotel? And I will also say in terms of the strength of her character, like she takes a crazy beating beating yes. in this in like, oh, yeah. like and, and, that, and that's one thing i do love about the the adaptation love i use very uh, uh softly because i think the, the adaptation the tv adaptation sucks but <laughs> like the the abuse that she gets in that in, in that in that like is very similar to the book and i was cringing with the cocaine the, mallet? with the yeah. cocaine yeah. Mallet yeah. while can, reading this. you can feel it yeah uh, like, i mean the they hear stomach rogue mallet. rogue uh, rogue rogue, rogue. rogue? Oh, okay thanks cr- Ullman. Um, <laughs> wait you know. is there a difference between croquet and rogue yeah there is a subtle difference and they talk about it uh, early on in the book yeah. but is it just like a, oh, a parasol umbrella like it's just a hey look to the overall hotel we actually take it very seriously <laughs> and, and if you're going to be playing roke uh, uh with us we'll... if you want to play croquet go to the holiday Inn. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and that's just down the way closer to sidewinder um, um did anybody have anything else to say about i, I don't have any I, I have another character um, okay, wait, I'll say this one last thing about okay. Wendy was that what I liked about her like it's almost kind of what you were saying about the idea of um, uh, she, in a way she's the most reliable narrator yeah. that we get because um, and you know because we don't get the omniscient king like we did in no. Salem's Lot here uh, we get we are always operating at character perspectives and mm-hmm. Jax is clearly warped um, and it gets more warped as we go on Danny's is too undeveloped to really resonate um, Holleran is limited, so we don't see as much. But with Wendy, I feel like that's where we get the most humanity. Absolutely. Um, we see the most warmth. We see the most uh, genuinely human characteristics. And um, and so, yeah, I think in a lot of ways you end up caring about her um, maybe the most in the book because you see so much um, genuine like humanity exude from her. And she's also not involved in the... She's the only one not really embroiled in the supernatural elements of the book. Like, you know, she doesn't have to shine yeah. like um, the others do. We touched upon Jack and how kind of unreliable he is in mm-hmm. terms of even his internal monologue. But I think that um, the older I get, the more I appreciate that character. Mm-hmm. I don't think I understood the nuances of the fact that not only is Jack obviously an alcoholic in the book, he's also depressed. Mm-hmm. I mean, he goes back and forth on this a lot. And in addition to being depressed, he's also a jerk. Mm-hmm. He is a jerk. And the first page makes it clear. He's oh, a absolutely! Jerk. Yeah. He's just a kind of a everybody's against the world's against me that type yep. of attitude, and it a lot of it has to do with his father, who is mm-hmm. also abusive. He adapts his vocabulary. He uses pup and yep. take your medicine uh, from him. And cur too, right? And and yeah, yeah, cur is another word he takes from his father. And I think a lot of the book comes down to Jack and the fact that he, this is a guy who can't escape his, you know, pardon the pun, his his own personal demons, his own personal ghosts. <laughs> yeah, and it. And it dooms him in the end. And I, I and I found that really interesting looking at it as a quote unquote fully formed adult. Sure. <laughs> no, I allegedly agree. a fully formed. Like I, I absolutely agree. And someone um, and not to make this like a Debbie Downer over here, but um, I grew up with a parent that was an alcoholic and, and an addict um, with a, a multitude of different things. And and reading this book now, 
Um, and it's kind of ironic considering I read the book originally when all this stuff was actually happening around me and just was like a glib moron and didn't realize this. <laughs> like, wow, this character's a lot like my mom. Um, but no, but like it was, um, you know, reading it now, I sympathize so much more um, with Jack because you do get that feeling. The, the problem with any sort of addiction in any sort of... Um, uh, yeah, just addiction or, or alcoholism or whatever it could be, is that nobody really ever gives you a chance to come back. Like, they, they really don't. Like, you, you and, I, and, I, and I saw it with my mother. Like, you know, they, they always think that you're on the verge of, like, falling apart because technically you are. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, nobody ever really knows how far you've come, like, to recover because they always think that you're going to go back to that thing. So you could actually be very far along in your recovery process in your head and that you mentally feel good but it doesn't matter because nobody everybody's always going to give you the benefit of the doubt mm-hmm. because of like the stuff that's happened in the, in before and you really get a sense of that with Jack because you know even when they're just having conversations she'll ask a question like Wendy will ask him a question and he'll answer it and he'll be like what do you fucking care and it's just like mm-hmm. oh you're just going to give me this thing and it's like it, he gets prodded because he thinks any sort of question or any sort of um uh, uh, speculation on on his end or his actions is a result of because of something that happened before and 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 I think every adaptation actually does a really good job of that because mm-hmm. like the thing with like the, the arm thing like she will never forgive him for it because uh, honestly like who would like yeah, it's, really severe. Severe. Want it. it's it, very severe it's not like he spanked the kid he broke his arm but yeah. there's yeah. no there's no but like and it's a lot in a large part of I would say is it's very reflective of, of how this country is is that it's it, which not to really broaden it but if you really think about this country in a way, we, you know, we have these puritanical values that this country was set upon, even though we say that, you know, um, and, you know, we have in God and we trust and everything else. But nobody forgives in this country. And, like, you know, we love to, to do the whole Shirley Jackson lottery thing and just, like, throw stones until somebody just is, submits and, and realizes they're this evil person forever. And redemption never really comes into play. And on a personal level, I think that that's even more severe because you just have no trust and that you I totally get that in this story and and to your point Justin I, I that's I found Jack to be a really compelling character in that vein I mean not so much when he wants to beat the shit out of his family but <laughs> yeah. I will ask every one of you what what point you know get down to the page number of the chapter but at mm-hmm. what point do you feel Jack gets to that point of no return where he is going to go down this road of destruction and and, fish and really uh, kill his his family because I have I have my own take but I like to hear yours first Oh, you, uh, I, I have a I, I like I actually underlined a chapter. It's when he he's in the snowmobile yep. and he sees the battery and he realizes like we could do this and then he's like but I want the overlook and then he realizes the situation he's in and if you want to explain it yeah I've, I've got it here it's yeah. it's really it, it sums everything up it's the chapter snowbound oh sorry the chapter the the hedges yeah, yeah. oh no I'm sorry oh, it's right everybody's it's confused the, it's, it's the, the snowmobile chapter it's yeah. at the end of it. Um, and he says, I can't win. He said very softly. That was it. It was like trying to play solitaire with one of the aces missing from the deck. Abruptly, he leaned over the ski dude's motor compartment and yanked off the magneto. It came off with sickening ease. He looked at it for a moment, then went to the equipment shed's back door and opened it. From here, the view of the mountains was unobstructed. Picture postcard beautiful in the twinkling brightness of morning. An unbroken field of snow rose to the first pines about a mile distant. He flung the magneto as far out into the snow as he could. It went much further than it should have. There was a light puff of snow when it fell. The light breeze carried the snow granules away to fresh resting places. Disperse there, I say. There's nothing to see. It's all over. Disperse. He felt at peace. He stood in the doorway for a long time, breathing the good mountain air. 
and then he closed it firmly and went back out the other door to tell Wendy they should they would be staying. On the way, he stopped and had a snowball fight with Danny. Mm. It's just mm. that's, that's so that for me, and, that's, and that is, is a good two thirds of the way into the story until I feel like he really he broke there. Yeah, yeah and for me, that was also the moment. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but the thing the thing I thought was very interesting was that um, there's not really a clear cut moment in either adaptation that that happens right um but it, but for when i got to that point in the book i was like oh well here it is yeah. you know yeah. and it's and very and it's clear so to simple me. too yeah and it's, and it's not even scary or frightening or no. just, it's tragic that that yeah. adds it's a whole layer to thing. the book that's, that you don't get it's the, that last yeah. detail is yeah. so good i'll also say that um i definitely agree with you and i but i think that he also crosses a threshold when he takes his first drink uh from grady at the bar mm-hmm. like when he's there with um and I love that scene. Like rereading that, that was one of the sections that struck me most. Was uh, was when he, you know, when he sits at the bar and feels people watching him, and then realizes that all the booths are filled with the people in the masks, and the oh. woman from the tub is sitting next to him, and suddenly her breasts are like just hanging out, and it's like such an unsettling scene. But I still feel like maybe he could have walked away at that point. Maybe mm-hmm. he could have gone and yeah. put the, the battery back into the snowmobile. But that moment that he takes the the drink, because he, he, he contemplates it for the second, and the way that King writes the sensation of tasting that drink after he's been off it for so long is like, um, there's something really sinister about Who it. Who could blame him, though? Lloyd rules. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, he takes the drink from Lloyd, not Grady. <laughs> Talking about putting the battery back into the snowmobile... Um, I love, I want to say I love the ending per se, just because it, it gets a little explosive. I mean, pun very much intended. But I do love that in the book, and this doesn't even happen in the in the ABC or NBC miniseries that they did, Jack is able to have a moment of, of coherence where he is able to like kind of come out of it for a second and... Mm-hmm. And at least save his family, you know? Now, what I really like about how they portray this in the book is that it's it's not um, it's not like a full-on transformation. It's not like he suddenly realizes, like, oh, my God, I've been horrible. And then he's he's good until the moment he, he kills himself, essentially. It's just this small, small spot of brightness he's able to climb yeah. back to just for a second before descending back into it. And I think that is such... A realistic way to portray that kind of thing with him and, and and like i said even though the the main series which the whole point of it was to be more faithful to king's novel it's more of a redemptive arc in that yeah, which yeah. i don't like as much and we'll talk about that a little bit later but i love that here it's not it's not a full happy ending for him but he's able to just for a second find the best part of himself and at least ensure his family gets to safety. only the only way you could have really have pulled that off is if you do some sort of like speculative thing like did mm-hmm. he or didn't it's like the league yeah. of your own like the ending with the ball. Oh, yeah. Like, it's a whole other like, podcast. you hate that. Yeah, that's a whole other... <laughs> you could have like three hours with Justin on that one. But I think it had to have been like a, a, an action where you do wonder like, did he or didn't he like... Maybe you don't see it from his perspective. Yeah. 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 Or you could do like under the skin and just go into... Or <laughs> yeah. Stranger Things and go into that mode of... Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. Um, I think the... Uh, I think that's I think that's a good uh, uh, summation of Jack. Uh, let's. Is there any other characters we want to touch on before we move on? I have one, and Mike has one. Uh, I got one that's great. Um, that I called him Exposition Watson, um, <laughs> in which he came on uh, on board to give you a, a nice little tour of the hotel and also be the biggest asshole in the world. <laughs> like, I mean, like this guy is just Stephen King's way of being like, 
oh yeah. <laughs> like, like I, the, I should have saved these for pound cake, but because we're talking about characters and they are all specifically Watson, I have to bring them up here. Now this guy, like I, I just imagine like that guy that's in the, I can't remember his, the name. He's actually in the eleven twenty two uh 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 miniseries, but he's in a lot of like Adam Sandler movies or um, but uh he's 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 also in um. Uh, I can't remember his name, but he plays um, the guy that basically is the catalyst for Eleven Twenty Two. Um, uh, oh, Chris Cooper? No, no, not him. It's the it's the guy that that that, uh, that Jake Epping's teaching. Like, anyway, I I, I can't remember his name. Was he's, actor, he's, but he's in a ton of he's yeah. a character actor. But I always I just picture this guy. Basically, looks like a guy that, like walked out of like a um, a mop bucket or whatever. <laughs> but um, he 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 walks around and you know drops all these things about the boiler and all the ghosts and whatever. But like. Here, here's some quotes. This is how he describes the outside weather in the Overlook. When it whoops, those rooms get as cold as and as frigid as a woman with an ice cube up her works. <laughs> like, good God. Was that and page then, two? Like, yeah, that, that's like page two. Yeah, it's like five or six pages in this book. And then on college, fellas, say, you really are a college fellow, aren't you? Talk just like a book. I admire that. As long as the fellow ain't one of those fairy boys. Lots of them are. You know you stirred up all those college riots a few years ago. The homosexuals. That's who. They get frustrated oh and have to cut loose. Coming out of the closet, they call it. Holy shit. I don't know what the world's coming to. Like, what a he dick. Doesn't, he doesn't like, stop. He doesn't Can stop. Can you imagine if you're talking to someone like that? I know. That. He's like, so where's the boiler? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then Jack, Jackie's just like, yeah. Like, and, then, and then here's another one. Like, uh, on, on, the, on the woman that Ullman had to fire, he's like, here's this woman. Must be 60 fucking years old. My age. And her hair's dyed just as red as a whore's stoplight. Tits sagging just about down her belly button on account of she ain't wearing no brassy ear. Big varicose veins all up and down her legs so they look like a couple of goddamn road maps. The jewels (laughs) dripping off her neck and arms hanging out of her ears. It's like, get this guy Rob out Zombie. Here. It's like Rob Zombie. Yeah, yeah. It is. Oh, it is. It's, it is a total Rob Zombie character. It's, oh, my God. But, you're, yeah. You're thinking of the actor Leon Rippey. Leon Rippey. Oh, Ooh. Yeah. Who was in Maximum Overdrive Ooh. and Firestarter as well. Who's he playing Maximum team. Overdrive? Um, probably some he of plays one of the guy. He plays one of the trucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you remember the Green Goblin truck? He's yeah, that Green Goblin truck. Um, uh, the other character that I'd like to point out uh, that I actually find quite interesting is uh, Al Shockley, um, Ooh, yeah, who we never yeah. even we never even really meet in person um, outside of memory. But I think that his journey with Jack um, through alcoholism is really in- is like really interesting, and it seems to me clearly based on a real person um, that King was probably drying out with. But I think the moment that um, I found very striking was. Um, it's that idea of um, your whole relationship is based around drinking, right? Mm-hmm. These two characters. And then once they're on the other end of that, the relationship has taken on this new air. And when they're on the phone and Al is like, is like, you know what? I'm actually kind of enjoying coming to enjoy sober life. And then Jack just cuts him off and he's like, we'll talk later. Like he doesn't mm-hmm. want to yeah. hear that because he's struggling so hard and he's, you know, obviously losing his mind and struggling with his family and then this guy that he went through hell with is like everything's going great for me you yeah. know that to me created a really interesting I, I pictured the dentist from uh, Curb Enthusiasm uh, oh yeah uh, Bert, uh, or uh, when he's just like oh I have Burt Bondright or whatever like, or Burt Bond Burt Bondi, Bondi. And he, like I imagine that actor he's like a Seinfeld regular too like I imagine him playing uh, yeah. well, or whatever. and that goes back to this thing we were saying of of self-sabotage with Jack. I mean, yeah. I get why he is annoyed about that guy, but it's within Jack's personality 
not to view this guy as, oh, this could be like one of my only lifelines out of this mess and out of what I'm currently feeling. It's mm-hmm. just, it's just, oh, well, it's either why me or why not me, you know, mm-hmm. kind of thing. And that's really sad. Well, in terms of the, res- the resentful nature, there, Al also represents somebody who I feel kind of took Jack further along into his alcoholism. Mm-hmm. But he also represents somebody where everything is kind of easy for him. It's like it feels like it was. It was. It was, it was it's not easy to get over any type. You're not, you're always an alcoholic, essentially. But mm-hmm. it seems like it was easier for Al to move on with his life and escape alcohol, where Jack still struggles. And it's another one of those. Why is it so easy for him, and why is it so well, hard for so me? He's so successful too. Yeah, and he's, he's yeah. just dragging and, Jack yeah, through all exactly. of his jobs. Right, yeah. and like Al clearly has the means to do so. I mean, he's he's got the money. He's sitting on this board. You know, he, mm-hmm. he it's a lot easier for him. He's not you know struggling to write or struggling to even have a job. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So. Um, yeah, he's definitely resentful towards him. I, I, he also, they're also responsible for another little mini short story that uh, King kind of mm. alludes to in there. You know, there's a couple of them that we haven't really touched upon yet. There's like the kid that that Jack beats the beats up George, George um, that he kind of changes. You had mentioned a couple weeks ago, like it's eerie how he kind of changes that that story with the, the student changes. Well, yeah, the story essentially, you know, how they have the kid saying that Jack set his timer, like mm-hmm. his Ford, to cut him off during his debate. And when we're reading it, we just think the kids being a jerk but as the book goes on yeah. we realize no Jack actually did mm-hmm. kind of sabotage this kid yeah. and you know you kind of little, learn a little bit more about Jack through that too and with Al's short, short, short story and he also, sorry, he also beats the shit out of him he too. beats the shit out of him which you want um, a little bit about which I probably would beat the shit out of that kid <laughs> to be also. fair I would have um, beat the shit out of that kid like, <laughs> I, I, he slashed his tire well, here's, yeah. here's a question you're, though you're dead kids did Alan Jack run over someone? That's a great question. I, I like love how that. open-ended that is. Yeah, the, the, the story about they go out drinking one night and then they run over um, a tricycle or a bike in the road yeah. and uh, um, and then they look around everywhere for a body and but the question of why and then they never find one but the question is why was that bike in the middle of the road? Mm-hmm. Um, and that to me is such an eerie horrifying moment and like they come they come um, out of their uh, that's when they resolve to get clean is right after that. Yeah. And I think that that's perfect because for me, I, I didn't want to know whether there was a child, and I didn't. No. I felt like, well, that's not the point. The point is, they were drinking, and whether or not they had too much, or maybe they just maybe they drank and then they got in and they they had like a beer. I just felt like, for them, the fact that they couldn't recognize or resolve whether or not there was a child was scary enough for them to do, stop drinking. Do they, and, and I think that. Well, I would th- is there a detail where they talk about there's bl- like he? Th- I kind of sworn that like Jack has like a sudden jab of thought of like was there blood? Or like- oh, I think he yeah, I think there is a moment later on where he starts to question various details about the story and ask whether or not he's hiding certain things. And I think it's just sort of a natural when there's some kind of ambiguous tragedy, you're always replaying it in your there's head. There's also a really brief moment during that where he's questioning the bike, where he's questioning what happened with George, where mm-hmm. he he thinks for a second and they never allude to it again. That maybe all the wasps weren't dead in the wasp nest when he left them in Danny's room. Yep. And yeah. I thought, oh. And that's where I think Which is, it plays yeah. with those psychological details yeah. in really interesting, ambiguous ways. Because um, then you don't wonder, then you wonder, is the is it just all in his head or is it the actual hotel yeah. that's doing it? Because again, he's unreliable. He's crazy yeah. at this point, but maybe. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. Um, on that note, I think it's time we take a left turn into the cemetery. What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all.
The cemetery is where we like to talk about uh, some of the spookiest moments, the moments that really climbed under our skin, the things that uh, did what King does best, which is, uh, you know, keep you up at night. Um, I will start. Uh, the There is a scene that I had almost... Com- I only remembered very vaguely um, that when I revisited the book, it gave me even more chills because... Um, it actually manifests in a way that I don't remember. And that's when um, Danny goes out to the playground uh, pretty late in the book. And um, the concrete rings that you climb through are buried under snow, but he climbs in one anyways. And then there's this combination of claustrophobia from being trapped in there when there's snow on either end. And then the darkness of being inside it when it is somewhat submerged and also um, the idea that he's not alone in there and the creeping sense that he's not alone. And I guess what's so scary about this moment to me is that um, is that I've had that feeling when I've been in claustrophobic, play, dark claustrophobic places where I feel as if I'm not alone or something is in there with me. It's a fear from my childhood that I always had. What's so horrifying is that when Danny climbs out and looks behind him, and looks back at the concrete ring, he actually sees something, and he can't even really articulate what it was. But I have this section, I'm going to read it. Yeah. This re- this is by far to me the scariest moment. Yeah. Um, he stood up and stared back at the concrete ring, almost completely submerged in the snow. And what he saw at the end he had exited from froze his heart. There was a circular patch of darkness at the end of it, a fold of shadow that marked the hole he dug to get down inside. Now, in spite of the snow dazzle, he thought he could see something there, something moving, a hand, the waving hand of some desperately unhappy child, waving hand, pleading hand, drowning hand. And then um, in italics, a voice that um, is clearly whatever that thing is, speaks in his head, save me, oh, please save me. If you can't save me, at least come play with me forever and forever and forever. It's, like, creepy, too, because the way he he jumps into that sort of realization, because he's having a fun time, mm-hmm. and his parents, I think, are asleep or something yeah. like that. Um, they just bone. And yeah, they're just boning, and um, they're in the bone zone. But uh, <laughs> they they that, 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 that jump to when Danny's, like, it's like, wait, it's kind of frozen here. I'm stuck. Oh my god. Yeah. Like, I shouldn't be here. Halloran told me not to be here. Why am I in this tube? Like that that transition right there, mm-hmm. the jump of of, lo- of logic is so scary to me. Yeah. Like, and I think just with the whole aspect of you know, stay with us forever, forever. I think that might have influenced Kubrick with the twin girls from the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the twin girls are not in <laughs> no. in the book. No. Which is funny because they're so iconic. Yeah. Of, of when you think of The, the Shining, Shining, like that's the first thing that comes up. Yeah. I um, you know. The Shining is so fueled by the sense of isolation, and, and, and King sells that really, really early on uh, when everyone's starting to leave the hotel. And, and these are probably my favorite sections that he's ever written. Um, I know that's a lot, pretty hyperbolic. big, huge hyperbolic statement. Mike, you haven't met Mr. Mercedes yet. I have not gotten to Mr. Mercedes yet. <laughs> and, and granted, there are sections of Pet Cemetery um, that I, in 1122 that I'll, I'll, I'll love forever. But these sections, especially reading it now as an adult, I, I, I it's hard to explain this because my, my, um, my entire life I've always been obsessed with looking behind. Whenever I'm walking away from somebody, I always... I've done it's like this obsession of mine of just like always seeing how far everyone has gone. You know, like sometimes when we leave or whatever, I'll look behind and see how far you've gone down the street or like 
you, just to see how far they've been like, oh, how much time has passed? Or like, you know, and I'll, and I'll keep watching. I'll see like how far the distance has been. And I don't know. It's just something um, that's been stuck with me ever since I was little. And reading these sections and seeing the slow trickle down effect of like everyone leaving because when they you know when the when they first when the Hallorans um or not the Hallorans when the Torrances uh first get to the Overlook Hotel it's it's pretty barren but mm-hmm. there's still people there like there's like you know a bunch of maids that are waiting for some their guests. rides yeah. there's some guests you know the last minute guests with the, the credit card machine mm-hmm. that's having a problem there's Ullman there's Watson our favorite um, <laughs> um there's there's Halloran there so it still feels like there's life and the way that King slowly takes those away you don't really see the maids leave you do, when they come back in the lobby they're gone when and then it's finally just you know Halloran and then Watson and Ullman it, it, the, the way he writes these things and I'm going to read a few of them especially like so when Halloran leaves uh, uh, King writes um, and this is in Halloran's perspective abruptly he started the car and put it in gear and drove away trying not to look back and of course he did and of course the porch was empty they had gone back inside it was as if the overlook had swallowed them and this is before everyone's even left yet and then they get into one of the first instances um, where the Torrances realize what kind of situations that they're getting in. Um, and first is Danny. And he says, uh, it's from his point of view, and this is when Watson leaves, and I'm sure everyone was happy when he left. Um, <laughs> but still, it's still scary because there's one less person there, and now it's just Ullman. King writes, his truck disappeared over the brow of the hill and then reappeared, smaller, on the main road, heading west. For a moment, Danny felt more lonely than he ever had in his entire life. A- and... And like again, it's like these are these like little like, you know, burns at the end, like mm-hmm, these little like mm-hmm. kind of um, leads at the end that that, that just kind of singe you. And finally, when Omen's there, and this is a guy that nobody really wants to be around, but it's still such a, a uh, still such a, a ring, like a you know a, a, like an inner tube to hold on to, because it's like well, there's somebody else that's here still, so it feels like it's just a normal place. This is this is just unbelievable writing. Um, they, th- this is at the very end of the front porch, which is just just a great chapter, and I'll keep rereading this over and over again throughout my life. Um, again, all hyperbolic, but I, this just really touched me, like in terms of like creeping me out. But it's just the whole family there in the front, and and Ullman is kind of taking his time to leave, like so because like Ullman's kind of like sad to in a weird way. Cause he, he, he feels sympathetic toward toward Jack, I towards them, but yeah. then he also loves this place. So it's like this weird thing mm-hmm. where he's kind of biding time, and they're just kind of waiting around, like, well, we got to start this up. But it's right here. So <clears throat> they watched the they watched until the car was out of sight, headed down the eastern slope. When it was gone, the three of them looked at each other for a silent, almost frightened moment. They were alone. Aspen leaves whirled and skittered in aimless packs across the lawn that was now neatly mowed and tended for no guest's eyes. There was no one to see the autumn leaves steal across the gla- grass, but the three of them. It gave Jack a curious shrinking feeling, as if his life force had dwindled to a mere spark while the hotel and the grounds had suddenly doubled in size and become sinister, dwarfing them with a sullen, intimate power. Then Wendy said, Look at you, Doc. Your nose is running like a fire hose. Let's get inside. And they did, closing the door firmly behind them against the restless whine of the wind. Mm. And that, just reading that, and there are some scary parts in that book, but that (laughs) is the best... That is the best way I, I mean just like how he sells that book in that in that chapter like you get that feeling of what they are well, feeling no, and like I agree with you and I think that's it's the perfect setup for them getting there um, I also love that too um, yeah. just seeing everybody slowly leave because yeah. you don't really get that in any of the adaptations no. 
No. And it was something I think that they really sorely missed out on. Absolutely. Because for me, that was that was huge. We don't only get a sense that they're alone, but as the reader, now you're thinking to yourself, oh, now we're all alone here. Yes. And this is where we're going to be for the next, until the end, yeah. pretty much. And it's a beautiful scene. With scenery. few exceptions. Like, and that's what's so weird. It's like, I'm, a, I'm a huge, big fan of um, juxtaposition, and, and, and that juxtaposition of having this gorgeous autumn air in a, in a, in a scenic, you know, really beautiful scenery is so eerie to me. Like, well, yeah, because, I mean, most haunted house novels or books I mean, novels or books or novels or, or movies they're always these creaky old gray yeah. mansions dilapidated mm-hmm. mansions and this is a beautiful well-kept yeah. hotel in a beautiful area of the United States and it doesn't matter yeah you know? no yeah which I think is really effective um, for me uh, this kind of dates back to what we were talking about uh, Salem's Lot when uh, the Mike Ryerson character is upstairs from Matt and Matt hears what's happening with the, the window opening and you don't mm. see anything but you hear everything Actually, I was going to talk about another section of the hedges mm-hmm. with um, Jack's encounter with the topiary animals and the the fear of, of hearing and knowing something's approaching, but you can never quite catch it happening. Mm-hmm. It's the unknown that always freaks me out personally. Yeah. But the early, another, so the earlier one, not the, not the, the, not, not the Danny. One, yeah. Not the, yeah, But the um, section for me, which I just recalled, is when Jack and Wendy are in bed and they hear the elevator oh, starting up. Yeah. Creepy. And they hear slight like low conversation and they hear low music in the back and then they go to the elevator and um and jack is adamant that there's nothing wrong mm-hmm. he's he's he, he looks up in the elevator it's, it's stuck halfway between floors says it's nothing we're fine when he doesn't believe him and this passage always freaked me out uh this is from the elevator chapter then she was up her cheeks flushed her forehead as pale as shining as a spirit lamp what about this jack is this a short circuit she threw something and suddenly the hall was full of drifting confetti Red and white and blue and yellow. Is this a green party streamer faded to a pale pastel, pastel color with age? And this, she tossed it out and it came to rest on a blue-black jungle carpet. A black silk cat's eye mask dusted with sequins at the temples. Does that look like a short circuit to you, Jack? She screamed at him. Jack stepped slowly away from it, shaking his head mechanically back and forth. The cat's eye mask stared up blankly at the ceiling from the confetti-strewn hallway carpet. And then we just move on to yeah. now they're all in on the, in on what's happening. Mm-hmm. Really, they're really it's officially they're all in on what's happening, and Jack can't really lie any longer. It's and fun. we still have two hundred pages left. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> what, I was going to say is that is that after that moment of the snowmobile, or is that before that? I'm just curious. That is slightly after. It's only a couple chapters because after the snowmobile. It's funny you say that that you pick the that specific hedge animal instance and that because with the hedge animals it's like he's still trying to catch if there's something yeah. wrong well, really wrong. Tell. Yeah. and then now it's kind of like he's actively trying to like cover it up in a yeah. way you know with the hedge animals it's it's funny because I was never scared per se by it but I just thought it was such a cool moment like I was really bummed when I finally watched the Stanley Kubrick version it wasn't in there although but she would have done such a great he job he would have yeah and, oh and um, I mean because you don't the beauty of it is you don't have to show full creatures no. moving you know no. but um it, it, so it didn't scare me as a kid. It looked at more like a, a cool thing. You know, it's oh cool animals coming to life. But I will say, whenever I see a hedge animal now, which isn't that often unless I'm at the zoo or something. Um, but whenever I do see a hedge animal now, I can never not think of The Shining. You know what yeah. I mean? Like I always think of, of that of it. You know, coming. It's sort of interesting how there's there's um, the iconography from the movie is really the twins or Jack bursting through with the axe. Two, both things are not in the book. Yeah. Whereas what everyone associates with the book, if you've read it, is the hedge animals. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, and the hedge animals was absolutely one of my favorite things in the book. 
especially the sequence where Jack goes out to uh, trim them, and then and then he's you know fixing the uh, on the playground, and he looks back, and they slowly start to move and move towards him, and he's doing what I hate in the TV adaptation, which is him telling himself, oh, I didn't see that. I didn't see that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But in the book, it's really creepy because he, um, because, you know, he hasn't convinced himself that this stuff is real or these things are happening yet at all. And he gets so panicked and, and almost starts running at one point and falls and then turns around and they're all back where they were yeah. and they all have this, their snow covered again and it really creeps me out. I just wish that when he trimmed the animals, you would hear one of them say, yeah, watch it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, watch the fuck. Who said that? <laughs> uh, but no, but, but it, it sounds like like you know one of the animals from like uh, Lady and the Tramp or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or, yeah, or, or like, like Oliver and Company. Like, oh hey, what's going on? <laughs> and, and to <laughs> piggyback <laughs> off Robert of Robert uh, Costanzo is like one of the. <laughs> and to piggyback off of what Justin was saying earlier, um, I think that one of the creepiest moments for me as well is when uh, Jack decides to investigate the room where Danny was apparently abused by the woman. Yeah, and, 217. Um, he doesn't necessarily see the woman, but he hears her uh, kind of stumble out of the tub and go after her. And like, I just thought that that was excellent. Yeah, I actually have that queued up because that was a moment I wanted to talk about as well. This is such a freaky thing. Like, um, because he goes and he opens the shower curtain and nothing's there. Ooh. And then he closes it. Mm-hmm. And then he turns around to leave and like hears a noise. And then turns back and he can see the silhouette through the shower curtain that she's in there. And then he just lets it go, keeps walking, lets it go. And then, um, uh, and so um, I have the section here where as he's leaving, um, he walked to the door with that same jerky stride and forced his fingers to curl around the knob. It won't open, but it did. He turned off the light with a fumbling gesture, stepped out into the hall and pulled the door shut without looking back. From inside, he seemed to hear an odd, wet thumping sound, far off, dim, as if something had just scrambled belatedly out of the tub, as if to greet a caller, as if it had realized the caller was leaving before the social amenities had been completed, and so now it was rushing to the door, all purple and grinning, to invite the caller back inside, Mm. perhaps forever. Footsteps approaching the door, or only the heartbeat in his ears. He fumbled at the passkey. It seemed sludgy, unwilling to turn in the lock. He attacked the passkey. The tumbler suddenly fell, and he stepped back against the corridor's far wall, a little groan of relief escaping him. He closed his eyes, and all the old phrases began to parade through his mind. It seemed there must be a hundred of them. And then I'm going to skip those, because it's nonsense. But um, <laughs> And then he says, no, he whimpered, hardly aware that he had been reduced to this, whimpering with his eyes shut like a child. Oh, no, God, please, God, no. And I feel like a weaker story would have ended here, but this is what's so great. But below the tumble of his chaotic thoughts, below the trip hammer beat of his heart, he could hear the soft and futile sound of the doorknob being turned to and fro as something locked in tried helplessly to get out, something that wanted to meet him, something that would like to be introduced to his family as the storm shrieked around them and white daylight became black night. If he opened his eyes and saw that doorknob moving, he would go mad. So he kept them shut, and after an unknowable time, there was stillness. And, like, that to me is... Uh, oh, and then he says right after that, like, he he looks around and the hall's empty and he says he felt watched just the same. He looked at the peephole in the center of the door and wondered what would happen if he approached it, stared into it. What would he be eyeball to eyeball with? Just the idea of something staring through the peephole at him is so freaky to me. And it also captures just the inherent 
uh, feelings we have when we do think there's things that are going bump in the night. It's mm-hmm. like it's like, is there gonna be something if I do look? It's like almost like a Schrodinger's cat thing, like where it's just like, well, if I do look, if it's, it's gonna confirm. If I don't, it's it does exist. Like, yeah, it's like you're you know the damn if you do, damn if you don't type thing. Um, in and that he takes sense. he takes that extra step of the doorknob jiggling to yeah. to be like no it, it's real you know sound is such a it, it's weird for for this being I mean it's a book but sound is so important in this story that I found myself like when they're talking about how like the footsteps were running toward the door when he closes it like I would mm-hmm. be reading it and be like, like yeah. to try to like mm-hmm. understand what that 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 that, that noise would be because it's like you do like like that that you're, that feeling of what we don't see in this book is so good and that that is like the best section for for summing that up another moment um that i I love in the adaptations but i I loved even more in the book is when um you know jack's coming after wendy and all of a sudden it says that the door to one of the rooms jerked open Mm -hmm. and a man with a green ghoul mask not a dog mask (laughs) a green ghoul mask uh popped out great party isn't it he screamed into her face and pulled the wax string of a party favor yeah it's almost at that point they're like having fun with scaring the hell out of her yeah knowing that like she's almost at her end kubrick's version does that Yeah, sure. but I will. Yeah. I almost yeah. wish he was wearing it. In the movie, he's got like blood running from his yeah. head, yeah. and I I think the ghoul mask. Is scary. I'm just imagining somebody just ripping open the door and then just slamming that. Yeah, right. and I that thought happens. you guys said Gould mask because Elliot Gould is Elliot in, Gould. Oh, yeah. in the miniseries. Well, Elliot Gould. We'll talk about the miniseries later. <laughs> um, there's also a moment when Danny is at the presidential suite. I remember near oh, the yeah. end of the book, and the door opens, and there's a woman who comes out, and she says, "Hey, would you like to tango?" And that actually <laughs> that actually points to. Um, when we're talking about scares, the one thing that drives me a little crazy but is still kind of effective is that Stephen King does a lot is that he makes his ghosts seem to delight in scaring people. And I think that works sometimes, like you're saying, at the end mm-hmm. when they're all coming out because I think they are. Mm-hmm. But the idea that ghosts are always grinning or, or saying things <laughs> yeah. like... Cracking wise. Cracking wise <laughs> and like saying things like, you want a tango? Or yeah. like, you know, in the stand where it's like, come eat chicken with me, sweetheart. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's just like, it's like those are such oh, weird... I love that I know, I kind of do. That's the so thing. weird. I still kind of like he's, he's dying. He's a dying sick man. I know. He's I, not I, ghost. There's no ghost. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I guess like, it's like it's like the wacky ghost and that's what the, the miniseries is, we'll talk about, but it's like so guilty of is the ghost cracking wise. Mm. I, yeah. I, I, I think the, the cracking wise things drives me nuts for sure. Um, but I think he gets away with it because of the randomness of it sometimes. Yeah. Um, but again, I think what we can gather from a lot of our scares here is the stuff that we don't see, yeah. you know? And I think that's the best part about this book is what's inferred. Like, you know, even when Holloran's reflecting on stuff, there's that great part at the end of, uh, towards the end of the book, it's like, I think like in late 400s, um, he starts going through all the different things that he, um, that he would remember uh, from like even the suspicions about the hedge animals and he talked about how other guests at the hotel had been reporting stuff. Mm. You know, how like the, the children didn't like going to the topiary and like they didn't do, like going to the playground and how he would pick up on these type of things. And one of my... Again, it's and I call them like little short stories, but I just see it as that. I see it as King coming up with these type of scares and figuring out how am I going to put this in the book, and he does that really well to, in this and just having little glimpses. But the one that really creeps me out and it's kind of it's very similar to Danny in the tube is when Halloran's up in the attic and the lights just go out and he has like he describes it as like evils kind of like coming from the the wood yeah. up there and it's like there's something that's manifested there. He doesn't see it. But he's just like, 
I got to get out of here. And then he leaves. And then what's really creepy is that like later on, I mean, he leaves the door open for the, the attic, um, knowing he's going to knowing full well that Ullman's going to be uh, like angry about it. But then Ullman says like, Oh, you left all the lights on up in the attic too, even mm-hmm. though they all went off and stuff when he was yeah. up there. Um, and again, it's like, we don't know what was up there. We don't like, just like, we don't really know what was in the, the tube other than being inferred that it was like a kid that was probably in there in, you know, it, it's it's just it's you don't know and like it's the un- it goes into what Justin's saying like the unknown is like the more the most terrifying thing and um, the randomness of it coupled with that it's just why this book is so f- oh, goddamn terrifying and I'll also say this um, uh, we had a vet we we took my kitty we had a vet come to the apartment for the cat because she gets anxiety about leaving and um, uh, and the vet was talking to us about how smiles and grinning is actually humans are the only species that does that to greet each other. Mm, yes. Smiling to all other species is a very foreign, strange yeah. thing. Mm. And that made me sort of reinterpret my idea of grinning ghosts and stuff like that. Because I think the point is that it does resonate as, as different when it is manifesting in a different species. And I almost feel like the more, the less human looking the monster is or whatever then the scarier the grin can be yeah it's like uh because grins can be such a cheap form of scare where it's like clown grins you know but i think um if you play with that idea that to non-humans smiling is actually a a threat you know a weird threat like a weird unsettling gesture it freaks me out um, any other scary moments we want to touch on? There's plenty, but I feel like we've we've hit some of the. I mean, the we big got ones. the two seventeen because yeah, we got that. that before. That's I mean, you, do we you, talk about the uh, the dog man? Dog oh, man is before. very spooky. Oh yeah, I guess we did. With that, that, one like Randall talking about animals smiling. I just think that hedge <laughs> animal should go. <laughs> <"Age."> <laughs> oh, oh my god! I just yeah. I'm dying over here. Just yeah. that, that like watch it, pal. <laughs> like. Like almost like the, the the guy that's in the in like when when Kevin's walking around in Home Alone too. Yeah. Just like, hey, you know, he starts laughing at him or whatever. On that note, um, I yeah. think it's time to move to the sillier side of things. Um, I think it's time to serve up a little dish of pound cake. After all you've been taught, everyone in bad mama, everything in the sin. Come to your closet and pray. Ask to be forgiven. He's a nice boy, mom. You like him. You really like him, mama. Pound Cake is a little section where we like to poke fun at some of Stephen King's looter, bluer, and... uh, Sometimes depressing. Sometimes a little depressing pokes at sex, but it's kind of just expanded to touch on um, bodily functions or anything that King writes with a certain relish that is just a little (laughs) bit weird. Uh, To to quote the uh, tagline for uh, 1994's The Mask, uh, King likes to get a little lean green in me. (laughs) (laughs) What's the um, mask? <laughs> it's um, a whole other podcast. Yeah. So, uh, Mac, why don't you read some of the the pound cake highlights that we yeah. found in this? In there's the not shining. a ton in the show. Yeah, there's not we, a ton. We've but. collected a few here, and we've also uh, marked the page for you in case you want to go read these yourself. Uh, page page, she, pages may vary. It depends <laughs> what edition you have. Uh, very so true. Yeah. Very true. Uh, so the first one here is, she smiled a little in the darkness. His seeds still trickling with slow warmth from between her slightly parted thighs. And her smile was both rueful and pleased because of the phrase her man summoned up a hundred feelings. <laughs> I mean, I will say I, that that's the one that that is honestly the that's only the one I remember it. Because as a kid, I never heard seed used in that. Oh, term. but you remember oh, that but, because but, he uses on. it twice. Yeah, here we oh, go. The second okay. one is, but in sleep she did believe them, and in sleep with her husband's seed still drying on her thighs. <laughs> 
Come on. When it, when which, it, which, wait, what was the first? Where was the? the how far apart were those? Uh, fifteen pages. About fifteen pages, because you know the first whole section of them when they're when they do yeah, stuff together. It's yeah. seed time. I'm surprised. wondering if he just forgot and he was just sitting there, just like he was like, oh god, I get the I gotta get my seed out. But I, <laughs> I, I always I, I'm always surprised like they don't have a scene where she wakes up and like oh his seed encrusted on her thigh. Oh, <laughs> oh god, Jesus. <laughs> what else do we got? Uh, we've got. Uh, the hem of the dress stopped a modest two inches above the knee, but you didn't have to see more to know t- to know they were good legs. <laughs> a, a lot of times oh, with, with to be the, fair, sometimes you don't need to know. Anymore. A, a lot of times with his um, <laughs> when he talks about the physical features of, of a man or a woman, he he goes into second person, and he did this with Jahubis also yeah, last Jahubis. week. That, oh, that you've ever clapped an eye to? Yeah. Like, am I right, constant reader? Like he's, yeah. he's nudging him. He always he does he always says that when talking about like dresses or shirts. Like yeah. uh, like yeah, oh, like it's, it's a, like he's sitting at a bar and he like <laughs> turns around. And, he's just, like, <laughs> yeah. and as, you know. as 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 gross as this next one is, I thought it was actually kind of um, uh, violent and one of the more scary moments of, of Jack's like thought process. Yeah, he says. Um, she was totally excited now, leaning over him, her breasts tumbling out of her shirt. He was a, he has a sudden impulse to seize one and twist it Ugh. until she shrieked. Maybe that would teach her to shut up. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. just like freaky. Jack's yeah. a jerk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, There's a callback um, to that in Lizzie's story. Oh, oh is yeah. really? Uh, How so? Um, or is that for King's Dominion? That's, that's no. That's for the. That's for um, twenty. I don't think it's a direct. I don't think it's like part of the King universe. Thing. <laughs> King universe. It's like it's like the way that Jack. Uh, yeah. uh, another one here that you're gonna have to take. It just said that there was a random sex scene as they discuss the Overlook escaping. Oh, the oh yeah. I have. You can talk. I can that. talk about that. You oh. move on to the next. Okay. <laughs> uh, we've got um, uh, George Hatfield and Tub stabbed. It said. His penis floated limply like kelp. Yeah, that's actually kind of that's kind of unsettling. Yeah, I kind of like that. That's some good writing, right? I hate kelp. Uh, Another one here is her dress was full skirted, but he could feel her thighs against his legs from time to time, and had become more and more sure that she was smooth and powdered naked under her dress. Mm. I mean, again, powdered. He's he's sitting up there alone in that house in Maine. Was it? Is it a cupboard? Doesn't he? Oh, no, that's after his car accident. He started writing in like the cupboard because he couldn't yeah. get to his room. Um, yeah. oh, this, uh, and then we've got a, another great one with Halloran here. <laughs> Halloran's testicles turned into two small wrinkled sacks filled with shaved ice. <laughs> wow. His guts seemed to have transformed into a large mass of silly putty. Yeah, mine would too. If that's going on downstairs, I will say I'm with, the same reaction reading that. Do you <laughs> think it's because he's a guy? I feel like he actually does describe he male genitalia in a way that's kind of realistic True and unsettling. Well, the, the limp penis floating on... You guys have been in bathtubs, like you're just caught up. Like, oh, yeah, I'm yeah, just like, like sitting there with a novel. You know? That's actually <laughs> how I read The Shining. In, in all seriousness, there, seem, there seems to be something... When he talks about women, there seems to be something a little just more dirty old like man about alien. it. alien. Well, yeah. He's obsessed with breasts. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, Dan, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> the, part, the part that is so crazy to me is like... It's after Danny has been attacked in room 217, and they're literally talking about whether or not they're going to leave. Like, Jack just doesn't want to talk about it anymore, so he starts, like, rubbing her boobs and pulling them out and sucking on them as she's talking. But, like, what drives me crazy, and I'm like, give Wendy more credit, she completely abandons these very serious discussions because Jack is so good at playing with her boobs. Yeah. <laughs> King is really big into, and maybe there's something to be said for this, he's re- very big into the crisis uh, 
leading to sex thing. He does it in the raft. He does it in the mist. He does it here. It just always seems like a foolproof plan. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Then, yeah. <laughs> like, um, that, that being said, it, I, I think we definitely isolated some more pound cake individual <laughs> moments than usual. To be fair, though, given how long the book is, I'd say it's a fairly tame novel it is. for it There's is. definitely imagery that's creepy surrounding, yeah. like we saw penises and breasts, that like seeing the the woman and everything like that. But as far as actual sex scenes go and how ridiculous they are, it's like nothing compared no. to um, something like it later on. Yeah. Or oh, yeah. Sounds well, like Gerald's game, especially. I, I don't even know how we're going to tackle that, that that scene in it. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. You uh, constant listeners, I think you'll know what scene we're talking about. It's going to be a little bit. I hope we don't get arrested. uh, The Losers Club special. (laughs) (laughs) It's our namesake. We have a whole special section for it. Yeah. I think Um, it's time to uh, uh, you know put down our forks. uh, You know, let that pound uh, cake digest a little, (laughs) and move on to um, the the greater breath of King's Dominion. There's another world out there. So this is where we like to tie in books to the larger, um, the larger uh, universe of Stephen King. As we know, many of his books are connected, and um, I think that uh, The Shining has some sort of curious connections to mm-hmm. other books in there. There's one I'll, I'll say for last, which I don't think anybody. Well, have you read The Talisman? Yeah. Oh yeah, you've read the Talisman. There is a little allusion to a character in The Shining, which I did not is know there? about until some research. I didn't, I didn't well, tell uh, Well, hey, let me tell you now. Um, from the Talisman, here's a little excerpt. This is from the um, what's the name of that school? The um, Sunshine Academy, whatever it is. Uh, for the Breakers, or for the or no, for where he is, where he is, where he is. Oh, um, it's something really happy sounding. Yeah, it's happy sounding. Isn't happy. Not necessarily. Don't worry about it, folks. You can read, read the Talisman anyway. Um, the line is this. In the headmaster's office, Mr. Duffrey had been discussing the expulsion of a boy named George Hatfield for cheating with his furious and oh, rich father. Wow. When the bells began to jingle out their unscheduled little tune. That's the only I would reference. Never I thought, that so that there, kid yeah. still is a troublemaker no matter where he went. I thought that was that a little boy. <laughs> one, one thing I picked up on, and I couldn't tell, because I cannot remember in Salem's Lot or uh, Carrie, is, is this the first appearance of 19? Because there are 19 steps oh. on page 583. Like, Wendy makes a deliberate, you know, mention of the 19 steps. Also weighs the book. That she has to get up on the Room thing. 217 or 217? 217. So, which, which equals 19, obviously, yeah. So I'm wondering if huh. the... the It just seems weird that, like, the, that he would call to attention to the 19 steps. Well, I think there, there are like, two things, and maybe he's been interviewed about this, so apologies if he has, and this is redundant information, but it could be the thing that he introduced the number 19, the Dark Tower later on because he just happened to notice it popping up in his work and he said, oh, I'll make yeah. a thing out of it. Or is it a thing where, I, I definitely don't think it's a coincidence that 217 and the 19 steps are connected. Yeah. Is it a thing where, I, I have a hard time believing that that was his master plan from the beginning, but yeah. there is something kind of cool about that number popping up so frequently. Uh, I do think that it's interesting too that um, we have Carrie being telekinetic and then, you know, not two books later, we have Danny, another telekinetic uh, Telepathic. Where, telepathic, excuse me. Clairvoyant uh, telepathic. So, uh, That's the thing about The Shining is it's sort of this weird fusion. Yeah, of I don't two. know if there were many other references to any of the other books. So did you guys have any? Well, well, I have some. It's oh, the yeah. idea that, there that, is. That, oh, oh, okay. there is. Yeah, like there's a. I mean, uh, you got one of you can do the Halloran thing, but I have a theory that again it goes to the Ellie Creed thing. Like, I, I think that like his characters are very linked in the telepath. The the, the telepathic characters are all they're, linked they're breakers, kind you know of. like Charlie from the Firestarter, the Johnny from the Dead Zone, even to an extent 
Um, although I think it's more biblical, John Coffey, like mm-hmm. in a weird way, because yeah. he knows all the, the 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 secrets and such too. But I feel like Danny, you know, obviously like Carrie's is is the start of it with with in terms of um, being telekinetic. But I don't think Carrie is able to really kind of infer. No, like, that's more telekinesis. So. That's just yeah. more telekinesis. Because telekinesis so, is where you move things with your mind mm-hmm. and cause things with your mind. Tel- uh, telepathy is reading minds. Yeah. And, um, I think like if you know with doc, like obviously we'll talk about Doctor Sleep um, in this and you can you can digress yeah. on it but I do I do think like Ellie from Pet Cemetery is one that everybody always kind of glosses over she's centered like, on she Victor is, Pascal she has the shining yeah. like she, she does. really does like and so I'm, I'm wondering like I've always thought like King should absolutely revisit her character and have mm-hmm. him Maybe her she gets together with Danny or something. But, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, they go on a cool, cool, cool adventure together. Well, there, um, there's something to be said for Ellie. I mean, she's really the only survivor in Pet Cemetery of, from that family, and Danny obviously. I mean, his mom survives, but as we get to in Doctor Sleep, she passes away eventually. Yeah. They're both they're both survivors of these very traumatic events surrounding. Yeah. Um, you know, their family's getting destroyed. Um, yeah. Well, we could, let's just go ahead and touch yeah, so, on Dr. Sleep briefly. Yeah, yeah. Because what happens with, like... So Dr. Sleep, um, we won't stay on this too brief, long yeah. just because we'll have a whole episode about it in the future, but, you know, Dr. Sleep is the direct sequel to The Shining. It, um, we were talking about this earlier. The first about 20% of it is great because it just does follow Danny from the ending of this book all the way to where he is now, and everything makes sense. I mean, he becomes an alcoholic just like his father was uh he starts to use his ability to essentially uh usher people who are dying in an, in an assisted living facility to the the next plane because he is able to see what's there and and know about their life he's able to to have them have a peaceful ending the tr- the weird thing is that whereas in the shining the alcoholism is like a constant threat or whatever in dr sleep it's just something that happened to him and he's since gotten over so and then you, you find out more about what's happened to Halloran and his mom and everything, and they, they both die. Um, and then the book just takes this left turn into fighting these psychic vampires that aren't quite as cool as the ones you see in the Dark Tower series. They're essentially like this traveling carnival of inept old people who eat kids. They, I mean, they feed off of, of people who have the shine. Yeah. And and what, what do they look like? They're, they're, trailer they're just like they're, 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 around the trailer. they're like carnies. They're all, yeah. and there's like old. I talk about pound cake in that section. You get to see a lot of bunch of old people having sex. It's great, uh, but <laughs> it's just strange because Doctor Sleep at Slim a certain up. point just obviously it has a connection to King's Dominion and and the Dark Tower and um, The Shining because it's a sequel. But at a certain point, it just is like, why is this even a sequel? Yeah, to the Shining, that's how you know? I felt. And we'll get into that later on. So yeah. that, that's a big connection. Um, the other one also relating to Holler and did you want to talk that's about the, the it connection? Um, that'll be it. Yeah, and with Justin. Yeah, we talked about the, Mike about how well written Mike Hanlon is, and Mike Hanlon is um, is it is it? I can't remember exactly how they do this. I know it's all in it's italics. His father. It's, it's about his father and yeah. what happened to his father. It, it, it and, and was Harry. a um, was it the black spot. Or? No, no, no. no. It's, there is a um, there is a sort of speakeasy for the black, black spot yeah. for, called yeah. the black spot for soldiers but, and, and Dick Holland's. It's Mike Hanlon's um, grandfather. A grandfather, I think, isn't it? Uh, no, it's no, it should his be father. his father because because it, it takes place in fifty eight. Yeah, so. it's his father. Yeah. Well, and long story short, Dick Holleran is a cook in this sequence, mm-hmm. and he's in there during this the black spot when um, you know, the, the, like the KKK or the version of the KKK yeah, try to burn blow the place up. Essentially, Pennywise and it awakens every time there's a huge act of violence in the in the town dairy, and that that is one that happens. And Dick Holleran lives. It is a. Just one of the ha- best parts of that book. Oh, it's great. Yeah, it's great. Um, it's one of the things that's funny detail. about that is that age-wise, I guess that works out with, with uh, I guess that works out with Holleran, right? Because 
he when was the shine written 70 76 yeah so the, so that's 76 and no, 77 that's 77 anniversary and how old's Haller in like in his 60s i guess yeah i mean it's it, what's yeah so that would work well yeah. he goes so he goes from being in maine at one point and then traveling around different places mm-hmm. going to then obviously working at the the overlook Going back to Florida, and then he ends up in Maine at the end of this book. Okay, so yeah. he goes back to Maine, and it and it does make sense. Um, it's funny because sometimes Stephen King will drop other uh, characters into these other books and not really be consistent with the characterization, uh, and that could be explained obviously that there are many different worlds and parallel universes as we learn in the Dark Tower. But for instance, um, in Duma Key, the protagonist is named Edgar Fremantle, which is the same name as uh, Abigail, uh, Abigail Fremantle's uh, dad, I think. Yeah. Um, but he's a white guy, and there's no relation. And I, I chalk that up to just being the sort of parallel universes. However, when um, Hollerin pops up in It, he is very much like Hollerin in this. Oh, he's yeah. very resourceful. Um, he helps people, I think, escape from the from the club. Yeah. So that's like a really cool thing to see in that. And also, it obviously came out before King did the greater connection to all his works through Song of Susanna. So I didn't read it when it came out because I was six years old. But when it did come out, I'm sure that was a cool thing to see if you had read the show. Ten bucks. And William Hanlon is Mike's father. Mike's it was not his grandfather. Not his father. Yeah. You have to remember the the book takes place yeah. in 1957. So, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, from the war veterans, it would have yeah. been his dad. Uh, I also have some some leaps here uh, and reaches. <laughs> um, it's like the room two three seven here. What about room two three seven? Room two three seven. We've got uh, the Buick weighted down with seven friends and a keg of beer. Buick eight, anybody? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, we also this have, does sound like <laughs> we've got um, the Jack and Jill Nursery Schools in Stowington, which is actually oh, more yeah. of a, just kind of like center of disease oh, we're control, talking about, right? Right from the stand. Uh, they also mention uh, the Mafia Free Zone Colorado, which I thought was Whoa. interesting. That's interesting. Uh, as some, you know, rare groundwork for maybe that idea of the free zone yeah. in the stand. And they're both in Colorado. Uh, he was probably putting the, the, the lines together for the stand also yeah. at that point. And then uh, there was a line There was a line here <laughs> that said that uh, <laughs> they, they had come back. He had killed them, but they had come back. Sometimes they, they come, come back, back huh? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Which again, and then, though, they, uh, writing I did think, though, that there was something else that was really creepy I wanted to throw in there really quickly, was that um, Danny keeps mentioning that he's afraid of the men in the white coats that are coming to get him mm. next, which I thought would have always been a really cool th- Dr. Sleep instead of Carney's just having the, exactly. these people, the men in white coats. Because that know? ties to yeah. the but, men, uh, men in long coats from Hearts Atlantis who are yeah. coming yeah. after yes. people uh, with... The Dark Men, yeah. Uh, that would have been great. Oh, the Long Man. The Long Man and the Yellow Coats. Yeah, the Long Man. It looks like King didn't have uh, the uh, Shining to figure it out. Uh, <laughs> the Shining. Uh, Any uh, other uh, connections to other books here? Um, I think that is it for Apparently, me. the number 217s in It and At People. Yeah. That's and the only and also, listeners, anything that we forget or don't know oh, about, yeah, please, please share them. Us. Or anything you found that maybe... I know in online communities and in the compendium... For King, lots of things have been talked about. But if you find anything new, please share. We like to be shamed, too. So if you want to be as, as cruel as possible, it's fine. <laughs> call We're us morons. Call us stupid. Call Dude, us you, uninformed. You idiots. Pennywise pops up in the boiler room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, we look forward to it. Um, great. And on that note, I think it's time to jump off the page. Mm-hmm. Since we're already sort of, you know fluttering somewhere above the pages and uh, jump into uh, the film reel um, with our section we like to call 
page to screen. Grab the popcorn. Don't worry, Mom. I know all about cannibalism. I saw it on TV. See? It's okay. You saw it on the television. So uh, in this discussion, we're going to talk about Stanley Kubrick's The Shining from 1980. Yep. And then the 1997... Uh, yeah. miniseries uh, done by Mick Garris and then the film that came out about three or four years ago called Room 237 by uh, Rodney Asher which explores the various conspiracy not really conspiracy theories just odd <laughs> theories well, maybe so a few conspiracy uh, but that are floating around Stephen uh, Stanley Kubrick's uh, version of The Shining so uh, let's start with Kubrick's um, I guess, you know, the big takeaway here that probably none of you listening are surprised about is that Stephen King was not a fan of uh, Stanley Kubrick's uh, Shining, mainly because he thought that he, he's described it as like a really uh, slick looking car with no engine. Uh, it, he doesn't see a, any character arcs in it. He thinks that Kubrick uh, made like Jack Nicholson essentially was crazy for a moment one and therefore stripped a lot of the humanity out of the story. I'm assuming that I'm going to go ahead and assume that everybody listening to this has seen The Shining. Yeah. Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. <laughs> and if you haven't, Jesus. And if you haven't, it. well, you know, here come the spoilers. But let's let's look at this from a term from the perspective of like I think my brother and I and I think you we all saw the movie first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we read the book. Yeah. Randall and Dan, you read the book first yes. and then saw the movie. Yeah. So from my point of view, it's not like. From my point of view, it's a good, it's a good movie. Um, no, but so I grew up. I mean, I watched the movie multiple times for maybe a decade before I read the book. So when I was growing up, I never understood what King could have possibly seen in the film that you know irritated him so much. On its own, it's an incredible it's horror. Great. Movie. It's yeah. a great, oh, great, simple, very simple, mm-hmm. no question about it, horror movie. But. So for Randall and Dan's questions to you, as somebody, as people who read the books prior, how did you go into the movie? Did you know what was gonna? Did you know it was gonna be a lot different? Or did you go into expecting some of the same? I um, I knew it was gonna be different because my dad always trashed the movie, yeah. and I, I, I should actually ask him if his opinion has, has since changed. I feel like this was a, this was in the early '90s. Um, I know it was regarded as a good movie, but I feel like now it's really regarded yeah. as like, like yeah. this classic and, well there's I mean, a shift there was like, a shift there, there was a big shift I think finally when people were reassessing because I remember when the miniseries came out it was still like the popular thing to trash the Kubrick version yeah. and um, so yeah so my, my dad I feel like had, had planted this the seed for me like oh it's not that good it's, oh god Jesus not oh, like no. that um, no, but uh, no he, he had he had sort of colored my opinion a little bit of it by saying um, how it wasn't close to the book and I think at that age I was only like maybe 12 when I saw the movie I did have this opinion of like, oh yeah, if a if a adaptation goes away from the book, then it sucks. Like, oh, and and as much as I love Jaws, it's like my second favorite movie of all time. Once I read the book, Jaws, I think I had this opinion like, oh yeah, like the movie it goes away from all this stuff for no good reason. And then you get older, you're like, no, it went away from the book for many good reasons. Sucks, yeah, but, um, that's and so the, funny to hear you say that because oh, like I as lo- long as I've known you, Jaws has been your favorite movie. Oh, I, I've been like, <laughs> obsessed with it. And 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 it, I think when I was younger, I think I just had this idea of like. No, the book is always better, and you have to adhere yeah. to the book. And um, so, when I first saw the movie, I, I didn't dislike it as much as my dad did, um, but it definitely took me, I think, about a decade when I got into college. Maybe toward the end of my of me being in college, um, I reached watch it. Mike and mine's friend Bill ha- Bill's house, who Mac always also knows, we watched it at a party, and that was the first time I think I had been far enough removed at that point from reading the book to be like, oh, this isn't just a good horror movie; it's like an amazing horror. Movie. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, I was very similar. I I was so beholden to um, film adaptations having to <laughs> yeah. adhere to the book and of uh, you know or the source material, which now I'm like so not because mm-hmm. yeah, now I case. you really understand they're different mediums and they they unfold in different ways. But I remember being very excited by the miniseries and how much mm-hmm. it was going to hew to the book. And you know when I was young when it came out, um, I really liked the miniseries. <laughs> and, you know it doesn't really hold today, but. Uh, but, and now, you know, The Shining is one of my all-time favorite horror movies. But I'd only seen it, I think I'd only seen half of it when I was young. A, because it was a little too much for me. I was very queasy about horror movies for a very long time. And I think I'd watched half of it and I was annoyed at how much it deviated yeah. from the book. So I think I, I, I kind of wrote it off. Um, and then as I got older, I think I, yeah, I think I saw it like with some friends and we, I was like, oh, this is pretty good. And then I think I realized how much I loved it. Well, I think I might've gone with you guys like many years ago. Music we went box. and saw The Shining at the Music Box mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. and I was like, man, like I I, I knew it was good because I, I saw it in college again and I liked it, but that was when I was like, this I, is Yeah, level. I feel like it was like, oh, this is okay. This is good. Oh man, this mm-hmm. is incredible. Well, there's an interesting um, take uh, from a journalist that wrote this actually not that long ago. It was like only a few years ago. Um, Laura Miller, uh, who's a journalist, she wrote in October 2013, really breaking down why uh, King would probably just absolutely I remember that piece, yeah. And uh, she writes, um, King is essentially a novelist of morality. The decisions his characters make, whether Mm -hmm. it's to confront a pack of vampires or to break 10 years of sobriety, are what matter to him. But in Kubrick's The Shining, the characters are largely in the group of forces beyond their control. It's a film in which domestic violence occurs, while King's novel is about domestic violence as a choice certain men make when they refuse to abandon a delusional, defensive entitlement. As King sees it... Kubrick treats his characters like insects because the director doesn't really consider them capable of shaping their own fates. Everything they do is subordinate to an overweening, irresistible force, which is Kubrick's highly developed aesthetic. They are its slaves. In, and this is the real kicker. In King's The Shining, the monster is Jack. In Kubrick's, the monster is Kubrick. And mm-hmm. I, if you want to digress on that a little bit. I can bit, definitely yeah. take it back off that because if you look at earlier 60s Kubrick movies such as 2001, Dense Material... There's yeah. a lot going on there. Um, Doctor Strange left the same thing. Yeah. But when you get to not so much Clockwork Orange, I would say when you get to Barry Lyndon, and that's what which is does. which is very much you're watching paintings coming to life. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very much about the tone and how everything looks. It's not so much about what the characters do and what their motivations are. And I think a lot of that transfers over to The Shining. This is basically you get a lot of great scenes and pictures. You see, you can still see those twins down the hall. You can still see the, the the static shot of the elevator, and all of a sudden blood comes rushing. The dog out. man. You can see the dog man. And they're but, all perfect sh- shots, and they're all perfect shots, and it works great because that Kubrick was the greatest at that. Mm-hmm. So for me, somebody who saw the movie ahead of time, you know, years before I saw the book, going back to what she said, I agree that this is absolutely Kubrick's movie. Yeah, and the book is is King's novel, and yeah. and, and it's. It's a way of looking at this too, and going back to what you guys are saying about, um, you know, always wanting the the, the movie to be 100 percent faithful <laughs> yeah. to the books. Which you, as you grow older, you're like, well, wait a minute, what's the point of even doing this thing? Yeah, yeah. the thing is, they're two totally separate mediums. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's if you look at it like that, then they're both very good um, on their own merits. Which is probably mm-hmm. why he rejected King's script originally. What I was going to ask you guys is because I like what Justin said because. Uh, Kubrick's later work, and, and even 2001 in terms of the tone, 
he he does have a kind of like singular direct thing. Like yeah. it's the same mood all the way through. Yep. Full Metal Jacket is like that, even when it switches. Eyes wide shut. Eyes wide awesome. shut. Like They're very much mood pieces, which can be very complex in itself. I mean, P.T. Anderson's later stuff is a lot like that too. So I get, but I guess what I was going to ask you was when Kubrick read. Um, there's that old anecdote his assistant had about he would sit in his office. And she would just hear thumps on the wall because he was going through books for a little bit, trying to find the next thing to adapt. Because most of his yeah. work were adaptations, mm-hmm. very uh, liberal adaptations and loose, but still adaptations. And it would be him like throwing a book against the wall if he didn't like it and didn't think it would be good. And The Shining was the first one in a while. Like she said, he she just sat for an hour and heard him reading. And he and he said glowing things about the book, but he knew right off the bat he didn't want Stephen King's screenplay. So what do you guys think it? was that he saw in it because he had to distill one crucial element from it. Well, so it's like yeah. oh, sorry Mike, you go no, oh, but I, I think it's just the mood. I think it goes back in the mood again. I think that's you hit the nail right on the head on that, Justin. Like I, I think that honestly this is an entirely like mood based piece. Mm-hmm. Um and it can and that's what I think when people say like, oh this is like a really you know, not a good adaptation of the book. I get, I take, uh, like, no, I take offense of it. It's not like, it's not like my movie. <laughs> you, you slap them but, with your white well, gloves. Yeah, well, I hit them and then I follow them home. But um, <laughs> I, they, but the the thing is, uh, I, I I think it I think it is a great adaptation because it captures the mood of the book. Mm-hmm. Like you know, it, it it captures that that that's the sort of futility of like like well, this is where we are. Like yeah. this is this is what's gonna and it, and it has that claustrophobic feeling of. Of menace, and like, like menace is always there, and it's always in the it's in the air, it's in the walls, and it's underneath them, and like that that the movie captures that feeling. And know? like the book, and he even he he did praise this about the book. He talked about the intersection of the supernatural and the psychological. Yeah. Now, although you we and we said this earlier, you definitely could argue that the the book is much more literal than the movie. However, both of them do still have this very troubled character at the center and he's characterized very differently across but the bottom line is he's an alcoholic he's just not a great human being and at the end of the day the thing that both the movie and the book share is that the setting where they're at is reflecting him in yeah. some way whether you know, or not the accoutrements that come exactly and, and whether or not it's like a, it's a, it could be a chicken or the egg thing like which came first him or the overlook that whatever that's up for debate that's up for interpretation but the undeniable thing about it regardless of how you interpret the rest of it the setting and the man reflect each other, and I think that's yeah. the, the big takeaway. Yeah, and just I think the big thing is King values character and arc, and um, Kubrick does not care about that. Mm-hmm. That's why I think that he immediately rejected it because he's like, I'm not trying to tell the story of a man. Yeah, and um, and I think that if he's trying to capture the tone and cr- capture the idea of a place that is truly haunted, this is where, and I'm going to touch on Room Two Three Seven just a little bit, um, only because the things that are brought up in there, uh, the the more sane things are the things that I think really contribute to what Kubrick's doing here. Because these aren't even really uh, theories. These are just filmmaking, like things that people have noticed about the filmmaking, which is all the impossibilities that are that happen within the movie that are never pointed to. There's never a sign that points to them. Like the TV that Danny watches that has no plug attached to it whatsoever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that when they show up, um, when Jack shows up and everything, they have so much luggage that it makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, that when Jack is sitting down, when uh, Allman comes up to him, he's reading a Playgirl magazine. That might just be, a that joke. might have just been a joke, yeah. but at the same time, it creates a sense of unease 
it creates a sense of the uncanny that we're dealing with somebody who isn't mentally right and we're in a place that is not right like mm-hmm. at all that yeah. things are happening and people aren't even noticing when Danny's riding his bike throughout the or riding his tricycle throughout the halls yeah. um, the fact that he'll go through a door and suddenly he's on the second floor yeah the fact that there is this impossible window based on the architecture in Ullman's office that you walk into this certain place and there is a window but it doesn't make sense with the architecture yeah. the hotel itself is not bound to the rules of our world and that's what makes it so freaky yeah I mean there's a, there's actually and it's weird how you can like kind of interpret different things based on that sort of uh, mood and the, the aesthetic of it all I mean I, I think that like for for example, like there's always a scene, there's always a scene like even as a kid I I just would interpret different things um, based on just how it was being played out. There's a scene where like Wendy's checking on the boiler herself and she You're talking about the it. book in the, in the movie. I'm talking about the in the movie. In the movie, there's a scene where Wendy um, Shelley Duvall is checking on the boiler herself. She's like looking over things, um, and she's alone and she hits on a switch and she hears like Jack crying. But for some reason, I'm so in, intrinsically linked to that setting that I actually thought that she was activating something that happened in that yeah. situation. I thought there was a ghost that like was like mm. like like something that happened with the boiler years before. And it's a weird and you're hearing, hearing the ghost rea- react to it. Because the boiler's not as much of a thing in the and it's not. It's funny no. that it's still a thing. Mm-hmm. Like do, so like there's yeah. like little things that like I would gather inferences from the the movie that weren't actually in that weren't that's actually not really what's happening in that scene. There was just but there's a lot of that that happens in that movie where where why I think like a movie like two thirty seven could actually happen, but going back to um, the actual just the the Kubrick film just in general, just uh, to talk about like the conceptualizing, it's it's interesting looking at it now and having just read the book to see what Kubrick cherry picked for himself mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. kind of create that thing. Like I love that he expands upon Grady's family because then it can parallel the Torrances and then he because everything's a parallel and mm-hmm. mirrors and like it's a huge thing for them. But I also love how he, like even like one little line. That 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 is off the cuff, like the Donner Party. Like he uses oh, that yeah. as just like a little thing right in the beginning to sting the audience to be like, "Ooh, that's a creepy." Snowden thing. Like, family who goes and, like, crazy. The Snowden yeah. family thing. Like, but like it's just a it's a small little line that clearly like clearly like like Kubrick was like, "Ooh, I love that that parallel. I'm going to keep it in there." Um, and and, and, and it's it's kind of cool to see how he took a collage of different things and then kind of funneled it into his own little vision. Um, yeah, did you have well? You, Piggybacking off of that, yeah. I mean, in terms of what did Cooper take, and you'd have to, I mean, you just have to pick up on some things when you're reading the book again after seeing the movie, especially. Uh, there's a moment in chapter 20 talking to Mr. Ullman where Jack says, No trouble. The boiler's okay, and I haven't even gotten around to murdering my wife yet. I'm saving that until after the holidays when things get dull. Mm-hmm. Two things. Well, first of all, it's a great little bit of foreshadowing that's, yeah. that's <laughs> eerie and out of nowhere, but he uses when things get dull. And in the film, oh, with a Jack type boy. on the typewriter, yeah. over and over again, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Yeah. So I wonder what like little things that Kubrick took here and there. Well, yeah. like the Derwin, scene, the, the dog the is a little dog. thing yeah. he took. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. You don't know Which, who that is in the movie, but yeah. in the book, we know who it is. And you know that like that that sort of whole ballroom thing is just... I I almost feel like that's the point where he like was like, I have to do this movie, mm-hmm. is when he's having these flashes of the 1920s and everything, because like that that, to me, is where the film becomes its own like yeah. really like becomes its own like is where you, he like goes all in because those scenes are so stylized like look at the bathroom mm-hmm. like when he's talking to Grady it's not really a scene in the book um, yeah. for the most part like they have a they actually have a discussion with like next to a dinner cart or something yeah. like that or whatever but um, that whole scene is so 
iconic and hyper stylized. Like if you really think about it, all the iconic stuff in this movie really like what you had mentioned before and you had mentioned before is like they're all not in the book. They're like little no. like echoes of the book that he's taken. Like, Even the hedge a, maze, yeah. which is a callback to yeah. the, the, the hedge, hedge the topiary. Uh, topiary monsters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and, and I, I think it's interesting because I, I think that the book is so much from the point of view of the humans uh, side, the human side of things, uh, Jack and Wendy and and the people that are at the hotel, and I feel like the movie almost feels like you're looking through the point of view of the haunted hotel. Absolutely. That's a great point, yeah. Because yeah. Of, the, of the things you were mentioning, Randall, where things don't really make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and they see, uh, you see Jack already kind of crazy, and like the person that they're going to go after to, you know, attack the family. Wendy is... Uh, you know, even more frail and, you know, uh, uh, less of a, a, a fighting chance, you know what I mean? And then Danny is is just, you know, crazy. <laughs> He's, yeah. crazy. He's more insular. But, yeah. but I, I feel like it's almost like they took, a, you know, everybody up to 11. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this goes back, this goes way back to um, why didn't Stanley Kubrick throw this book against the wall? Mm-hmm. Because he, at this point, he had had a lot of horrific elements in his movies, mm-hmm. but this is going to be his first Straight up horror movie. Mm-hmm. It's only horror. I mean, you could argue it's wide shut. Maybe, but that even but, that's more yeah. of a mystery suspense. Yeah. But and so here we have the hook, which we talked about, the haunted house, which he keeps, which he keeps the haunted and the telepathy. Hotel. Well, yeah. possible. And even look at yeah. the ending of two thousand one. Mm-hmm. Like if the the very ending when mm-hmm. when a uh, Bauman um, finally is uh, or Bowman um, finally is in that room. That mm-hmm. very like it's so similar to The Shining that whole sequence is so like it's almost like when you like think them all together jumbled they, they're almost like of the same movie of universe mm-hmm. like I don't know just the way that the stairs are I think it actually makes sense right now to jump into Room 237 yes. since it's exclusively about Kubrick's movie yeah. um, and also you know like I said I I think a lot of people view this movie as sort of um, a crackpot <laughs> uh, that this is just a bunch of um, conspiracy theories or whatever about The Shining um, and even Stephen King himself when he was asked uh, his mm-hmm. thoughts on it he said um, let me bring up this quote here I love when Avery gives the cast off quote just like I ah, gives a shit or something yeah. <laughs> well he said uh, well let me put it this way I watched about half of it and got sort of impatient with it and turned it off and then they said why he goes these guys were reaching like you Mac uh, I've never had you much, and your Buick he said I've never had much patience for academic bullshit it's like Dylan says you give people a lot of knives and forks they've got to cut something that's such a line from one of his characters yeah, I know right and, that, and, and he said and that was what was going on in that movie you know what is funny though that no I actually have not seen Room 237 yeah, guilty um, but uh, it's funny that King does have such a sour taste in his mouth about that because his in his novels, he's dropping connections all over oh, the yeah. place, you know? And they become obvious later on. But it, and, and look, it, well, it sounds... Well, 37... Sorry to cut you off, Dan. Well, I will it, say yeah. that it's... The first 15, 20 minutes is pretty fascinating for me. And it takes this strange, in my opinion, nosedive into just people it just reaching. On you. And I, so I, I do agree with King's assessment that it just starts to really reach and become very repetitive after a while... And I, and I also grew very impatient with it. I was really looking forward to that movie, too. But I, I'm of the mind of, like, Chuck Klosterman loves this book, this movie because he says it's, like, one of the first examples of just, like, po- how pop uh, cultural criticism online has boiled in, down into its own story. And that's what's more interesting to me mm-hmm. is to be able to – is that, you know, this is, a, this is a production that was born out of chaos. Mm-hmm. And I have, like, some stuff that, that I'll, I'll go into after a li- little later on about just some, like, some trivia that just shows just how fucking crazy this was. But – that chaos has bred into speculation and has because a lot of things don't make sense and so when people try to like add, uh, like they try to like 
makes sense out of something that doesn't it, it was never supposed to make yeah. sense which is basically David Lynch's entire career <laughs> but like and, and I think the thing that is so interesting about 237 is that it's such an encapsulation of that that you know it's like a microcosm online that exists and you can see it in this documentary and you know there are, you can make you can make 237 about a, a, a countless like other films like you could do uh, Mulholland Drive like, mm-hmm. for, for, for example Blue Velvet Orange. you could do yeah. Blue Velvet you could do it with anything that's very polarizing in pop culture and I think like that's the most interesting thing because I'm not really ex- interested in seeing the, hearing about the theories I'm interested more that they exist mm-hmm. you know like yeah, just right along those lines, what I like about Rodney Asher, uh, his mo- both this and his follow-up, The Nightmare, is that he's he's less concerned with content and more concerned with um, the ways that people create their own narratives, um, which I think is a really interesting theme, that if you love a piece of art so much, you sort of, you know, you become so obsessed with it that you create a narrative that um, is so divorced and different from, you know, what is actually the point and the point it's trying to make but it uh but at the same time their passion and their interest and the fact that they've delved so deep into it is i think the real point of it but what i think is really and i find i find uh, room 237 it's way too long it's about an hour and 40 minutes absolutely it should be about an hour and 20 i think because Mm -hmm. i think that it does get a bit repetitive but it's like um what i like about it is that there is some genuine film analysis that's mixed in there that i think a lot of people uh you know they get so caught up in the guy talking about (laughs) almond's uh paper tray (laughs) representing his boner (laughs) that's what i'm talking i know and that's so tiresome i know but is it entertaining though just from like in terms of the way it it's shot, too, it's, it's just basically slow motion shots of the entire movie for a hundred minutes. Because it tries just, to be scary in itself. Uh, and people which, talking and, about and, it. And yeah. side note, that's what I felt derailed Asher's The Nightmare. I know you like The Nightmare, yeah. but... Well, I think, I, think, uh, I think that what's... But I think the thing is, like, it does It does also challenge you to look at the movie in a different way. Oh, totally. Even though it's a little crazy, and to notice details that... Yeah, the paper tray thing is stupid, but it's like... But there are certain things that... Like, why does Kubrick say that the hotel was built on an Indian burial ground? I know, ground? and then why are there Indian... Like, and, and it goes into a... Here's, a, here's an interesting uh, yeah. little tangent on that. It, that that proves almost like that theory not proves that theory but has gives a little weight like Wendy Carlos who was uh, who had been worked on a Clockwork Orange she was originally supposed to be working on with uh, The Shining a lot of her stuff uh, got uh, cut but she had said the the film was a little on the long side there were there are great gobs of scenes that never made it into the film here's where it is there is a whole strange and mystical scene in which Jack Nicholson discovers objects that have been arranged in his working space in the ballroom with arrows and things mm-hmm. uh, so there was clearly like and then you watch like in the in the movie the 237 they talk about the Indians like Indian like uh, yeah, imagery that's on the in the movie if you haven't seen it there's a whole theory of that um, that Kubrick was commenting on Native American the Native American journey uh, in history, be, and but there are like there is the reference to the burial ground. There, what you're saying right there, and then there's a lot of Native American artwork yes. that's spread throughout yeah. the whole hotel. And um, uh, was this before Pet Cemetery? Yeah. Shining the movie. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Seven years weird. Yeah. And then oh wait, you go Mac. Yeah, no, I, I think that it's interesting, but I do think that it, it all boils back to Kubrick's um, the whole thing where he was wanting to capture this haunted house. And what better way to, you know, Jack's in the basement going over the, the books and all these things. In, in the book, uh, we get a history of the hotel. I think that he was ta- trying to take it a step further where um, it's not just um, the things that have happened at the hotel that make it haunted. 
it's you know ever since man was in this space yeah. you know and probably going back to you know native americans which would have been the next step uh, you know going all the way back to no, that's who were point. the first people that's that really you know point. populated this area maybe and even the horrors that they saw or they inflicted uh, are are still are haunting this as well I don't think it comes across that well sure. <laughs> because they don't get to go into that. And obviously there were some deleted scenes and things, but yeah. I think the Indian burial ground is just, was just a very simple way for Kubrick to say, oh, this is why the hotel's haunted. Sure. Because yeah. <laughs> Indian burial grounds kind of used to get in poltergeist a couple yeah. years later. Yeah. It's used, I feel the like cemetery, I, the haunted cemetery is used in Pet Cemetery. Did obviously. Lovecraft do it? I feel like he I'm did. I'm sure probably. he did. I mean, yeah. I think that was just an easy thing. And if people want to look into the slaughtering of Native Americans and go spend the rest of your life talking but about it. But people will always find, in pieces of art that they love, people always find their own meaning. No, I, I agree. Yeah. But I, here's, here's, my, here's my personal final word of the movie. You were talking about David Lynch movies are pretty much made for the public to take their own interpretation yeah. of it. And if you ask, if, you, if somebody did a similar take on Room 237 with Blue Velvet or Mulholland Drive, I'm sure David Lynch would say, oh, you know, this is, I love hearing the theories and this and that, this and that. Yeah. But if Kubrick was still alive today and you said, hey, what do you oh, think? Oh, he would hate this. He's like, it was a piece of shit. Like, yeah. it was stupid, <laughs> oh, it was sure. dumb. And I don't have time for it, you know? Yeah, that's but that's, a, that's some... I just feel like... I mean, I just... Uh, and I was looking forward to this movie, but again, it just gets... I don't know. It's but you know, Harold, the great playwright Harold Pinter, when they asked him what <laughs> when they asked him what his uh, what his plays were about, he said the weasel under the sink. Like uh-huh. he's just being like I feel like he was playful in the same way Kubrick was. I feel like Kubrick just I feel like Kubrick. Uh, I think he's a lot like King in the sense that he hates academic bullshit. Yeah. yeah. But that doesn't mean that I I think that he's laying a lot of ground and he's 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 like. I feel like there's so many little treasure boxes in that movie oh, totally. uh, that there that are, are to are. be pulled. There are moments. Yeah, it'll but, be great like bonus footage on the next right. Time and I'm not I mean, saying that like I feel like the I feel like Kubrick might enjoy the idea that people are finding those things. He might hate the academic side of yeah. it, um, the people creating narratives and theories out of it. But I'm sure like the thing is, he's not going to be the one to tell you what it is and what it's about and why he did that. Like Harold Pinter, you know. Whereas like other people are like, yes, that was my metaphor the whole time. I think yeah. I think he would have laughed his ass off. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. he would have too. The moon landing thing, especially. Oh. Well, the thing he was, really hated that. that yeah. Well, the hated- Theory, the theory of the moon landing was already out there, which yeah. is, and he, when he put Danny in that shirt, it's not because he secretly directed the moon landing; it's because he was making fun of that theory. Yeah, yeah. you know. One, it goes back to. I, I agree. I think that's how Kubrick would react, and I think a lot of these geniuses, like Harold Pinter and, and Kubrick, and P. T. Anderson, who has actually commented on this, I think they are all geniuses because they make simplicity so compelling. Yeah, like when yeah, when uh, when P. T. Anderson P. T. I almost said P.T. Barnum for some reason. When uh, Paul Thomas Anderson was on Mark Marin, Marin keeps asking about there will be blood, and he's just like, oh, man, like th- this happens in the movie. Like, what's this about, man? I just blah, blah, And P.T. Anderson just is like, it's just that oil, man. It's greed and oil. And I, I don't think yeah. he's lying or being no. cute. No, I, I think, think he's he, being cute. I, I, think he, I think he's being cute. I think he's being... I think he's taking yeah. this very big theme, greed, religion, oil, uh, consumption, and he's doing the thing Kubrick did. He's distilling it into this very... Um, Evocative package, you know, and I, and I think that is what Kubrick did with The Shining. I think with The Shining, there's a very fine line between making something simple and making it simplistic. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And That's he exactly. definitely toes the line because mm-hmm. he definitely breaks down these characters from who they were in the novel. Mm-hmm. But 
It works. Yeah. yeah. No, it I mean, absolutely and, does. And I think that's kind of a trend that we've been seeing with these adaptations is that everybody has been simplifying a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do, do we want to do... Yeah, uh, speaking of, uh, of other adaptations, let's touch on the 1997 uh, The Shining miniseries uh, made by Mick Garris, um, who also directed Stephen King's uh, The Stand miniseries, as well as Sleepwalkers. Which I love. Uh, which we'll probably do a bonus episode oh, at yes. some point. And, uh, and um, he... Uh, but yes, uh, instead of Jack Nicholson, who refused to come back and reprise his role, just kidding. Uh, uh, hey, they, Jack, they, we want you back. They cast uh, Wingstar and uh, I'd say Ultimate Hunk, uh, Stephen Weber, <laughs> um, as as Jack, uh, Rebecca De Mornay as um, as uh, Wendy, Wendy, and then the dynamic Cortland Mead um, as young Danny. And Melvin Van Peebles. Melvin Van Peebles is And uh, Uncle Steve himself as the band leader, Gage Creed, which Gage is really Creed. weird. Yeah. So and weird. Elliot Gould. Elliot Gould is Mr. Elliot Holman. Gould, fair enough. Uh, to be fair, oh, we'll get Elliot Gould. E-Mac, you go first. I'm, I'm <laughs> really doing no, page. well, I was just going to say, we were just talking about, you know, um, Stanley Cooper simplifying in, in a very good way the film. Um, then we were saying, you know, well, what about the adaptation that's like really faithful to the book? Like, that should be what it is. And I feel like this is an instance that proves that wrong. Yeah. yeah. Um, just Absolutely. because you're faithful to the book does not mean it's good. Um, it's, it was really interesting to watch uh, because, uh, you know, I, I would say when I saw it the first time, I still hadn't read the book. I'd only seen the Kubrick version. So it was interesting to me to see all of the differences and all the things that they pulled from the book. And it made me really want to read the book because I was like, oh, well, that, that's really interesting. Mm. However, it didn't. it did not work. No, and uh, to be fair, I remember loving the miniseries as a kid. I didn't like I did it too. quite as much mm-hmm. as the stand, but I think a lot of things. I mean, and this is really through no fault of its own. It tackled all the special effects of the novel in uh, you know on network television in the '90s. So I think that just works against it. There are just some things that look bad. Um, I don't hate the casting necessarily. I really don't. No. Th- I don't. I don't think I, I like that Rebecca DeMornay. I think she finds some more Wendy's strength. She's yeah. good. Um, yeah. Melvin Van Peebles, I think, does an awesome job. He as does Holler. Do like job. he just. I like that he just plays it straight. He doesn't try and you know he, he almost he almost downplays some of the uh, the more uh, the cartoonish elements of him that we talked about earlier, um, while still delivering the same dialogue. Stephen Weber. I mean, I remember. I remember even hearing that when I was little. Like, oh, the guy from Wings is playing yeah. Jack. This Cohen. iconic. Terrifying but wrong. he does find the everyman quality of him a little bit more than Jack Nicholson does. Like he does when we first see him, we don't know that he's doomed like we do with with. Nicholson. I think to give you credit, Randall, during the movie, you said <laughs> that he that he does handle like the everyman. Yeah, he part plays of it a fine. great a great like he plays the the father of yes. he plays the father and husband well, and even the the moments of like. Yes, I I've committed bad things and I'm trying to be better, but he can he he comes across as silly when he tries yeah. to well, be uh, psycho. And yeah. there's actually an interview that he did very recently on the Never Not Funny podcast where they actually talk about The Shining. Stephen uh, Weber, yes, yeah, oh, Weber's cool. on it. He's very self deprecating I mean, he's very aware. And he says if he could go back, knowing what he knows now, 20 years later, of how to handle certain adult themes, mm-hmm. especially and and to turn into a maniacal person. He would have done a lot differently. You can see like what beats he's talking about, yeah. and then, and a lot of that also goes down to the fact that listen, if you're going to be very faithful to a novel, you can do it in certain cases. But with this book, there's so much inner thought, there's so much inner monologue that mm-hmm. you can't really translate it. If you do try to translate it with people speaking out this inner monologue, it like just, Tony, like like all oh, the Tony thing, and then just this part <laughs> well, like we that talked kills about, the movie, man. where where Jack will say things out loud like, "Oh, this isn't happening. This isn't happening," and it's it's not scary. It's now it's just. Goofy, you know? and well, and they, that both Tony 
and Steven Weber, and once again, I don't know if this is much the performance as, as much as the adaptation, um, it ties in this idea of King, who wrote the screenplay, and I think this is a result of him getting older and getting sober, he doubles down, doubles down on the morality oh in the miniseries. God, big time. And that's a problem, because yeah. that actually is not really faithful to the book, if you think about it. Like, in the book, we do not see Danny waving to the Obi-Wan Kenobi ghost of his dad oh, during no. his graduation. Which we'll have a clip in, um, in the, the, the post on yeah. the Consequence of Sound. And uh, we, don't, we don't see Jack Torrance, um, in, like I said before, in the novel, it's this idea of he has this one moment of clarity where he's able to come back to his normal self and, and and get you know get his wife and kid out of there in this though correct me if I'm wrong as you guys watched more recently doesn't he start actively destroying the hotel like it's like he becomes yeah. Superman all of a sudden starts, starts well he's just bashing around with the uh, the rope yeah. but, but he's but he's in a state of mind all of a sudden where he He's back in a he's in a good state of mind, but when oh he no, blows I'm sorry, up, I thought you meant like when he's going crazy, smashing things. No, 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 I'm, no. I'm just talking about. Oh, no, like, he kind of comes back and goes down to the boiler room, and he's still fighting with himself, and then he does. Okay, so I guess that's true. That yeah. so, but I don't know for for some reason I remember it being I remember him being more explicitly like a good guy at the. Well, very he tells end. Danny to run. Yeah, I yeah. Guess. So I guess that's yeah. true. I, I don't know just something about he does. Oh, sorry, I keep cutting you off. But no, he does because okay. we just saw it. But he does yeah. right before the, the hotel explodes. He says something about he says something to his to Wendy and Danny or something like that. Or, and, and, and it's and, like, and that I love and you. That, I love you or something <laughs> like that. No, I something like that. that. Because that because that undercuts the realism of the addict and the and the the frustrated crave type and it just that and the graduation and tone. Becoming this like literal manifestation of, of Danny's like star power. from Born to Be Wild. It just, it just, <laughs> it just goes back to this idea of King as he's gotten older. I think he just wants that ha- that holy happy ending a little bit more. I mean, it's not holy happy because he dies, but like he wants to ha- he wants it to be more morally black and white. And I think that's just happened to him as, as, as he's gotten older as, as a writer, yeah. which is fine and that's totally fair. He doesn't want to revisit those demons, but as a result, just makes for a little bit more sentimental and cheesy of a movie. Which I agree. Uh, there's a scene at the end of the miniseries where <laughs> oh. uh, Jack starts to, um, you know, uh, turn the boiler off, but then he realizes, no, I'm going to leave it. I'm going to leave it. I'm going to let it explode. You know, he has that moment where he kind of comes back and he's, this, yeah, he's talking it. to Danny through the shine all of a sudden. And he's like, you know, uh, they had that moment. But then the ghosts grab it and start turning it down. And I'm like, well, if the ghosts could always just turn the boiler down yeah, themselves. Yeah. So bad. Why, well, but, did, why are you concerned about us human doing it? By the way, these ghosts look like uh, they'd walk right off the set of Nickelodeon's Are You Afraid of the Dark? <laughs> oh, <laughs> this stupid is, this, like, makeup is awful. This is the number. This, I, I will always remember, it's literally ghosts popping up and cracking jokes yeah. in lieu of being scary. Oh, yeah. It is so bad. But, like, guys... I'm sorry. We have to take a moment. We have to talk about Tony more. Yeah. Tony, yeah. Tony is so floating bad. Tony. Like, okay, uh, in the book, Tony is actually kind of creepy because mm-hmm. when uh, Danny sees him, he is a fuzzy, dark, imperceptible figure mm-hmm. that is sometimes blocks away, and he can see him very, very dimly. It's not until the very end of the book that he realizes that Tony looks like when he actually sees him and he re- and then he reveals that his middle name is Anthony and he says he looks like me and my father like mm-hmm. he is you know and it's me in yeah. 10 years in the movie it is literally some dopey looking <laughs> motherfucker like in like a flannel shirt and glasses and blonde hair like like floating. literally floating oh. in the air that is so green screened it is hysterical just being like like Danny Danny don't go why can't they just have it's a guy a, walking it's around star will horneff uh 
Star Born to be Wild. Star Born movie. to be Wild, which uh, uh, ape movie. Ape movie. <laughs> yeah. And it loses. It. It's ridiculous because anytime they would have asked, "Hey, who's Tony?" He could have got so detailed. Oh well, it's this guy who's <laughs> about yeah. fifteen to twenty years old. Or he's whatever, gonna be me. And, he's <laughs> bloating. He's blonde hair, glasses. I mean, like it's ridiculous. It's it is so much more effective in the book when you don't know yeah. if this is something we're supposed to be scared yeah. of. Yeah. We don't even need it. You know, that's the or, thing that drives me nuts. Is like we don't even need it in this movie. And like the the again, and, and Justin can talk to this to great effect of just how lame the directing of this movie is there is absolutely no finesse whatsoever to any of the directing that's in this and like which is astounding because there are parts of the stand that are really effective so like Mick I Harris still stand by still the stand it. man like, I, I think I, there, there, look it's dated it is very dated there's some great but there's some great stuff and when it's actually out in real like uh, settings as opposed to like sets it's like really really strong and like that you know Stu at the Covington or is it Stovington Stovington, Stovington yeah. Hospital that scene is That's great, great. Yeah. Awesome. the whole thing but yeah I mean you you were the whole time we were watching this movie you were talking about the lighting and, well, and everything else uh, just the like, best way to look at it now now that we we didn't have this channel to compare it to back then <laughs> but it looks like something that would be on like the Hallmark yeah, channel absolutely. in terms of the lighting where the, the camera angles the it's lit the, like the a Thomas Kincaid painting. It, yeah, it's just, and that might work in some other, but like a, I don't know, like a Nicholas Sparks movie, sure, but it doesn't work for Stephen King's The Shining. There's I, no atmosphere whatsoever. There's no, no. And that's the other problem. It just, it all looks, even though it's shot, no, even though it's shot on location, <laughs> yeah. for most of it, every scene, it looks like you're on the set. Every the scene time. lands like a dry hump. Yeah. I will say that we've been bashing Mick Garris' The Shining. There are three effective scenes for me yeah grant that's not a lot considering this is a four and a half hour movie we take out the commercials <laughs> it's one per hour and a half yeah the three scenes that i do think were pretty effective one is the first topiary animal sequence oh i thought you were gonna say the second one no oh, no, the no, second no, one's no. Bad. no this is the <laughs> non-cgi <laughs> this is the non-cgi <laughs> sequence i thought the first time with the topiary animals was done pretty well directed pretty well the second is the woman in the bathtub. Mm-hmm. Yes, they get that. It is done, done well, except yeah. for the dialogue. Yeah, which, which echoes oh, back yes. to the, yeah. the ghost speaking and doing nursery. Doesn't rhymes. she say like? Uh, well, Danny's doing a nursery rhyme and she continues it, which, oh, which kind of makes sense. But and the third is what we talked about earlier is the um, is Wendy getting beaten with that yeah. mallet. It's, yeah. it's yeah. it. You, you I mean you feel those those punches and, and, those and to be fair, I mean uh, I was just reading about this in that Stephen King book also. The network did give them a lot of freedom in terms of violence and what yeah. they were showing and everything. Um, Glad they used it. Yeah. <laughs> well, my, my thing is, my thing is I think she has a bloody lip or something. To, yeah. <laughs> to give the movie a little credit, and look, the stand looks dated as hell, and I still love watching the stand. How many ma- performances ha- in that movie? That is oh, true. Yeah. How, right. Gary Sinise was actually asked to do Jack Torrance in this, and he said oh. he didn't want to follow in Jack Nicholson's footsteps, oh, um, which he would have been great. He would have been yeah. that perfect thing. But what? what <laughs> oh, I know it could have been awesome. But what? And uh, and uh, uh, his fellow Stephen Weber's fellow Wings star, Brothers and Wings, uh, uh, Tim Daly was also asked. Who would have been with Church? Thomas THC. But my, I guess my question is, I agree with all that, but does it? How many miniseries on was that NBC or ABC? ABC. How many miniseries from ABC at that time in general, even acclaimed ones, looked good to begin with? You know, like it, it, is that from a result of, of misdirection, or is it just like ah, eh, like it's it's network in that time? Yeah, period. I will say a lot of it's network in that time period because mm-hmm. I don't remember watching it younger, thinking oh the production value on this is awful. This looks no. like a Hallmark movie. No, that's just that's what television looked like. I feel mm-hmm. uh, at that time. Also, I feel like. Um, 
And uh, I'm totally forgetting my point here. Oh, violence on television. The threshold has been pushed a lot oh, yes. over the last 15, 20 years. Back then, that probably was very violent for you it was know prime time television. Hey, but you look at no, X Files though in that in that time. Now, the X Files yeah. have been on for like four years by then. Yeah, like, but I remember so I, I remember it being a big H- deal. You know, like language. Yeah, like people weren't. You couldn't say shit. You couldn't say yeah. Pass. No, I agree. You know, like yeah. I mean, it's we've come a long way, so it's hard to look at it like that. However, it still doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Here's how I, I mean, again, like you guys, when I first saw it in, in, when I was a teenager, I was like, oh, this is really faithful. Well, this is different, I should say. I didn't read the book at that point. This is different. This is, this is affected. This is scaring me. But in a way that if you watch the Salem's Lot, for instance, if you watch the Salem's Lot miniseries, you could tell this movie was made in the late 1970s. Yeah. But for me, it still holds up. If you watch, yeah. if you watch the Shining miniseries, you could tell that this was made in 1997, but it doesn't hold no. up. And I think that, I mean that's that's the difference I can make there. I th- I think we've we've covered most of what's to cover for it. Can we really quick just talk about that second hedge animal? Oh <laughs> because, my god! Because I was so when I heard even as a kid, because I was so excited that that was going to be yeah. in it. I was like, oh, finally we get to see it. And even for that year, for that time period, I remember I remember like adjusting the colors on my TV because yeah. you could barely see it. I was yeah. like, wait, this looks like garbage. And then also it ha- so it has that. It has that CGI mixed with our favorite CGI fire, which is oh, they, yeah. they, the the whole thing. I just couldn't really like tell what was going on. It almost looked like a magic eye painting or something. Um, we're also um, not uh, touching upon the real elephant in this room, and that's uh, one Cortland Mead. And uh, <laughs> that is look. When we're supposed to have a oh, a, a he's story. not that bad. You uh, think are you so? kidding oh, me? Oh no, 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 no. Really? I, I, <laughs> this this kid is so fucking annoying. <laughs> I, I was rooting for Jack the entire time, and I'm not sure, I'm not I'm not here like trying to like promote like child abuse or anything like that, but. I could not handle this kid watching this movie. Like, and like, and Justin's, you know, interpretation of this was just, like, the entire time we were watching this, you're just like, shut up! Shut up! <laughs> like, you know, like, shut your mouth. Just was shut he just whining? Is he oh, just... He's oh, very breathy. Yeah. He's just, he's exasperated. He's tired. He's worn out. Like, he... <laughs> it's so... Like, his mouth is always, always hanging open. open. And let's, as, let's as just... As we I tear, tear nice... down this child actor. <laughs> no, 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 no. I agree with you that it's, he's not good, but we can't really go into, like, that's just how Oh, we can. We can. That's, that's not an acting choice. Cons- he just looks like that. He talks like that. Cons- like, I mean, you know, like, during our screening... Wait, wait. During our screening of The Shining... All of miniseries. us, uh, the Shining miniseries a few weeks ago. All of us befriended this uh, Cortland Mead on on Instagram, and we wanted to see what he's up to. And it turns out, Cortland Mead grew up to be a pretty cool dude. And he did. And you know, and he pokes proves, fun at himself. He pokes fun at himself. He pokes fun at himself, himself actor including too. recently on Instagram, where he posted a photo of him as the you know like around that time, 1998. Throwback Thursday when my 1998 rap album came out, <laughs> and it's Cortland Mead good. in his like traditional. That like that sort of like lame like emo sort of like pose like that he has on here. <laughs> so he clear yeah he is being very self aware yeah. about it. Like so I think even him he would re- Did, watch this this miniseries and be like I hate this I hate this performance. Portland, <laughs> if you're listening, we would love to hear your thoughts. No joke. Yeah. Is does he still act or, or not? I don't know. He's great in the, the I loved him in the Little Rascals. I cannot stand him in this movie. Who's he in the Little Rascals? Uh, I can't remember. Who is he, he plays. Porky or something? I know. Which I know. One? Spanky and Alfalfa. That's all <laughs> yeah. I know. And There's one called Porky. Yeah, yeah. Porky. Uh, and he's Buckwheat's best friend. Oh, oh really? I actually like. I actually like. I feel like that, that's that, that remake is like. great. That's a good one. I like Little Rascals by yeah. uh, Penelope Spears, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we're actually going to start a yeah. podcast about the Little Rascals. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, really quick. No, no, not even about the TV show. Specifically the movie. So we're not. How about Mel Brooks? We're not like saying Cortland Mead is is. 
We're just making fun of his whininess and his... I, um, no, well, I want to make it clear that I'm not making fun of him as a human being. I just yeah. think that the performance... Listen, it's very hard for a child to give an amazing performance. It's rare. We see it, We see the Stranger Thing... The Stranger Thing, the Stranger Thing cast struck gold. You know what I mean? But they're also older. But, so is and they're a little older too. And they're a little older too. Oh, and E.T. And Cause Cause Thomas was like amazing. nine years old or something. But, I, but was great in here's, here's what I'm trying to... I say all that to say this. The performance is bad. Bad. The performance is really bad. Yeah, and that's it's a, it's and, a and combination you need that, of factors. And you need that performance to be great because that's the he's the, that's the shining. It's and, the and, and there's no excuse because at that time Haley Joel Osment was on Thunder Alley and he was killing it. <laughs> he, he was, was considered it. for this, thing. and he was considered. And you know what? Kind of wish it was. Yeah, you know I see dead people. I see a greater role. Like that's <laughs> that's what I see right there. It's hard because I think Cortland Mead was really looking up to the actor that played Tony. So <laughs> you're looking at, you know, he's trying to. He's like, oh, this is a good actor. I'm going to try to do this, and and this is supposed to be me in the future. Uh, sorry, Corlin, you made the wrong decision. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, not, not everyone's born to be wild. <laughs> um, I think let's go through and give uh, the Kubrick uh, version and the miniseries. Um, uh, uh, give it uh, on, on a scale of one to five Pennywise <laughs> red clown noses. Uh, what will we be giving? Uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. I'm going to give it five Pennywise clown noses. That's always following Randall's footsteps since I seemingly always copy his uh, ratings, but I'm giving it five also. Yeah, a real stunner that we all thought The Shining <laughs> was, was a great movie. <laughs> Who else thinks it's a great movie? <laughs> yeah. No, I'm giving it five out of it's It's my uh, five out of five Pennywise red clown noses. Yep. I'll make sure I get that absolutely correct yep. for copyright reasons. <laughs> um, but I would say, actually, um, it's my second favorite uh, King adaptation. Nice. And What's we'll, your first? We'll, 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 we'll get. get oh, we'll get to those seasons later on. Oh, oh, I agree. oh yeah, I agree with that. I always forget that that's in there. Oh, you might not agree with what I'm. Um, I, you know, I'll, I'll go a little bit lower and give it four and a half bright red Pennywise oh. clown noses, uh, just because I think there's something to be said. For, I, I still think there's a happy medium to be reached between what what McGarris did with King and what uh, Kubrick did. I on think. Zone. I think you're. You're. I think like uh, like Jack Torrance. You're hearing your father uh, like, uh, <laughs> telling you about uh, this adaptation right now. No, I, I, I would give it a five if, if we're talking about it just as a film. But Absolutely. in terms of, it, you know, whether it stacks up in terms of an adaptation, probably a four and a half, probably no. maybe even a four, because I feel like there there is probably an adaptation out there that, that'll walk the line a little no, bit No, in terms of a movie, it's a five out of five. I mean, again, I don't know if Faithful, it's a one. I mean, but yeah. as a movie, it's a, it's five. Right. All right. Now let's uh, give Pennywise Red Clown Noses to uh, the Mick Harris's Shining miniseries. I'm going to give it... Oh, Dan, uh, you were in here last week. We can give half noses. Yeah. We uh, can't. Or can. We can. Okay, good. Okay. So okay. I'm going to give it one and a half Pennywise Red Clown Noses. Um, I'm going with a half. Mm. Oh, man. Oh, Come on. Yeah, it's nasty. I had, more f- I-, I had a great time hanging out with you guys watching this movie. It was so much fun. Um, I-, I think I gave zero... <laughs> To uh, return to Salem's lot last week, <laughs> and this is at least just a half nose uh, more than that. Uh, I, I would actually give it one and a half as well. For those three scenes I mentioned, unfortunately, uh-huh. the movie is four and a half hours long. It uh, is four and a half hours long. There's a lot of space long. in between those three little moments. So, I'm, uh, give me the contrarian. I did not watch it recently, though. You guys, I have to go off of my thirteen, however old, <laughs> how, however old I was, thirteen years old or twelve or whatever. I had to go off that memory. I remember loving them. I do recognize its flaws now, and that hedge animal scene looks like lion shit. <laughs> so I'll I'll give it three. Uh, wow, bright red three. Oh, hold I had on, to watch hold it on. Recently, Good I, I, lord. Here's what we should do, Dan. I really think you should borrow the DVD All right. that we had to find at a used <laughs> record store because it's not available to stream anywhere. Dan, 
I would like if you could watch this and the next time you're on the podcast, whether it's next podcast or one after, it. just give a brief, brief. I'll tell on. you what I um. Today I'm staying home with my dog uh, while my wife goes and hangs. Out. I sound like such an, like a loser. I'm like I'm like oh yeah I'm gonna stay home while my wife goes cool, does cool things. With their oh friends. god, don't tell me no, you're no, gonna no. stay home and watch the, the miniseries. <laughs> no, so, this is well, a waste of time. I, I, I have actual work to do, so I'll do that. But I mean, she ain't coming home for a while, so uh, I'm gonna finish uh, Deathly Hallows Part One of Harry Potter the movie because I just finished the series. Then I'm gonna go on to some Shining right after. Okay. Oh, I got a busy Saturday night ahead of you. <laughs> yeah. I'm oh, Matt, where did you get the I'm gonna give it one and a half for different reasons because there were a few scary moments in it. Um, but something we didn't mention at all was I thought the music was great. Uh, oh, the theme yeah. was it Barry? The theme the I thought was excellent. Um, I don't know who did it, but or uh, w- is it WG you know. Snuffy Walden? Who no, it wasn't. Who does the stand music? That's WG Snuffy. Who Walden. I love. I actually yeah, love yeah. that music. Did all uh, the music Friday Night Lights also? Yeah, I love him. So one and a, one and a half clown noses, red clown. What, um, what is that total up to for uh, each we, one? Um, oh, I I haven't been cute. I, I think, I think the Shining five. Let's give it a five. Shining is so far the top adaptation we have. Oh, I'm talking about the mini series. Oh, do you mean like like do you mean like the median like cumulative? Yeah, cumulative. Oh, I don't know about cumulative, but I think the average. Uh, after you bumped it up a lot, yeah, I think we're hovering around two. <laughs> it's a one point five for it all is you 1. kids 5, out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, uh, and I don't think we need to rate room two, three, seven. No. Uh, but yeah, um, I think it's time to move into our overall thoughts. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. <laughs> okay, I'll be right there. You said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. When thinking about the book on the, uh, you know, on sort of a larger scale, this was a really interesting reread for me. Um, mainly because I guess I had just we talked a lot about how scary a lot of the book is, and um, and you know there is sort of a sense of dread that st- that King conjures pretty early on, but at the same time, there's so much family drama. Um, it, it almost I, I almost found myself wanting to get to the scary stuff quicker. I I was I I was less interested in the stand as a character you study. Mean the, the Shining. Oh, The Shining. <laughs> I was less interested in The Shining as a character study than I was as a horror novel. And um, one of the things I realized on the reread was that it's it's a heavy it's a heavy um, character study, and that's not a bad thing. Obviously, I think it's definitely King's most complex and accomplished work um, that he had produced up to this point. I wouldn't say it's his best, but um, I think I prefer Salem's Lot to this book. Um, but but also, I, I always prefer King's ensemble-based pieces. But um, So yeah, but on the whole, though, I think that, you know, I think even though the third act is a little overblown, I think there's kind of a stretch, um, you know, in the middle to kind of near the end of the book where there's a lot of really wonderful... Uh, nuanced sort of um, character building, world building, and then um, just the way that King outlines the ghost, the the masquerade party is is such an amazing scene, top to bottom. A lot of really good scares in it. Um, but so yeah, I think it's definitely a great King book, but it isn't for me an essential King book. Um, I would probably give it on a scale of Pennywise, Red Clown Noses. I would give it a three point five. Um, I actually came around uh, to this book finally. You know, mm-hmm. it's a, a it was a, a redemption story of my own, for, uh, for, for, so to speak. You know, clearly I, I love this book because of the hyperbolic uh, statements I mentioned before. Um, like Randall, I do think that the the, the final act just uh, gets a little crazy. I mean, it turns into Die Hard too with uh, Halloran <laughs> yeah. and the topiary animals. And um, I also just I, I hate the the 
the Michael Crichton Jurassic Park-esque ending for everyone in, in Maine, and they're all, like, off in their own little world, and they're, like, you know, having this sort of, like, um, kind of, like, cut off of uh, what uh, what else is out, what's all happening, and, you know, they're all, like, kind of lounging around, and life is better, because, again, it's, and this is going to be a preva- prevalent theme that we're going to have to, or prevalent subject that we're going to have to keep talking about with King's works, and I think a lot of people, including himself, will agree on, is that he had, he does struggle with endings, mm-hmm. and um, I think that the ending uh, that is actually in the Kubrick version is just so great because mm-hmm. you don't really need to follow them once they leave the hotel anymore. No. Like, it's it. Like, they got out. Like, that, that's done. Um, and so for, so for that, like, the ending does bother me. Um, but, man, this, is, this was a great read. And I, I really enjoyed going through um, just the mythology of the hotel with Jack and, and also, like, what Justin and I had been discussing earlier, like, sympathizing with Jack like I mean I'm been married for a few years now um I'm not sitting here talking about how I want to like you know kill my wife or anything but (laughs) I I, I do I do get that my my, my wife is incredibly intelligent and smart and runs circles around me Mm -hmm. and I do it was creepy reading this book and sympathizing with Jack's inabilities Mm-hmm. and having him like when he gets frustrated and being like god nobody trusts my you know my sense of judgment or wisdom like you know i i i really I, like and not to you know personalize this but i definitely related to that like i, I it, it does bother me sometimes when you know you can't be trusted like or like or there there's or they don't like your personal judgment on things is kind of glossed over and so like in that it was like that that weirdly like that was something I would never be able to get as a kid mm-hmm. and it's because you just don't really understand the interpersonal you know relationships like I mean at that time I was probably like yeah like I don't like when my parents tell me to do things also <laughs> but like this is so much more nuance to it and I, th- I think like I think I honestly feel like Jack at this point where we are in, in King's bibliography Jack is is hands down the strongest character he's written mm-hmm. um, and the most interesting character that he's written here um and, it, and you could say the same thing with Danny also. Like, I, I think Danny, although he's abs- he has a, he struggles writing the dialogue and, and the way of thinking, the predicament that Danny is in is so real and, and, and has so much stake and so much um, depth to it that, that none of the other characters really had so far that we've read in, these, in any of the books. Like, Carrie, comes, Carrie is really close because there's a lot of discussion with just like um mm-hmm. uh personal relationships and, and the, the the struggles at school and everything but this is just it's it's there's a, there's something about Danny that's really like terrifying when you really come to think about it and, and i think that when i finally get to doctor sleep i'm gonna realize how much he like that that was botched up but um yeah for that reason uh, above all like i i it's not like what rana said it's not it's, it's not a great uh, like book altogether um but there are there are some like amazing sections of this book and amazing parts of this book and and, and probably some of the scariest things he's put into put the pages. So for that, I I definitely have to give it like four Pennywise uh, clown noses. <laughs> I, 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 I know to go from like the sad. I love how it's, it's this very serious discussion wrapped up yeah. with. I'm gonna have to give it four Pennywise clown noses. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, before I get into the heady nature, I will just go ahead and give my rating first and say I also I would also give it four red. Sorry, four red penny nose. I think Steve. Pennywise. 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 Ah, forget them. Four bright red. Hey, four four noses. 
yeah. four noses to, to make it brief. But um, I know we're trying to wrap it up here. But here I have a I have a different reading on the on the ending because I, I actually love this ending now that I'm so far away from having read the book for the first time that I'm so far away from having seen the movie for the first time, and I love the fact that Holloran is desperately trying to get back and there's bad weather. His plane gets yeah. canceled. His car can't go any further. And he's finally got this track. And even and now it's gotten to the point where the, this this hotel will not let him save his family. It's so desperate that they're that these topiary animals are going to come to life and even when they're on fire, still try to maul him <laughs> to death. I loved the severity of that, looking oh back God, on I that I forgot too, about though. the fire. Yeah, oh, yeah. It, it's insane. Thing, it's like, insane. But for me, <laughs> but, but for me, that... So that works really well for me now, and I will also say, especially having reading the, been reading these in chronological order, that if you look, if you're, if it's night, it's the, it's the mid 1970s. You read Carrie, and it's depressing as hell. Carrie dies, and Sue's, not you know, the whole Tommy storyline's gone. Sue's miserable. Everybody dies at the end, um, and then. Uh, oh, by the way, it's two thirty-seven as we're recording this right now. Interesting. As I'm defending it, um, and Salem's Lot. <laughs> Everybody except for Ben and and Mark die. And Susan Mark kind of goes crazy. Mark, wish we find out what happens to them also. Yeah, so. and yeah. then so finally you get the Shining. All these awful things happen. This man finally loses his mind. This man dies. This man tries to kill his family. He dies. So I actually now like the epilogue I like the final moment where, where Dick sits Danny down and says essentially I don't want to read this whole passage we're trying to wrap things up a little bit but that bad things are going to happen to you in your life and it's about how you react to those bad things that's going to determine the rest of your life so again as an adult I appreciate that much more than, than a, uh, a shock ending I, I love the movie ending yeah. but again that's its own separate thing oh, it is. It so is. for me I um, almost like moved by the mm-hmm. The summer epilogue. Mm. That's where I'm coming from. So again, four red penny nose clown numbers. Pennywise, penny nose. Four stars. Um, I am also going to give it four bright red pennywise clown noses. It's on a little bit of a sliding scale for me because mm-hmm. uh, I would have given Salem's Lot five. It's mm. like my third or fourth favorite King novel, but I wasn't here to defend it. And uh, <laughs> but so it's a little bit on a sliding scale because I, I like The Shining slightly less. I do love the ending thematically and what it says about life and hardship and getting over your own personal demons. For me, it's more the action of the the finale that's a little bit of a downer for me. Yeah. Just because King does this, and not just King, but genre writers do this all the time where they have to end with like an explosion. Like they yeah. don't they don't know how else to get rid of this thing. So they have to like even sounds a lot torch the town or explosion or in, yeah. God in superhero movies you see these like big vague energy endings that's like the best word I can use to describe it and they do that a little bit and not that it had to end exactly like um, uh, the Kubrick version of course but I do think there's something to be said for well this thing is still here we got out but that it's still there and that's that and the next guy's gonna have to deal with it so I, I guess I would just like to see a little bit more of a downplayed ending which sounds silly in a ghost story with yeah. with, with hedge animals but in retrospect I, I sort of appreciate um, the books where he maybe like Blaze where they're just a little bit more low key but it's also more low key books I don't know maybe nice that, Blaze reference wow. hey man Blaze, <laughs> blaze under, underrated blaze. gem just Blaze me Blaze um, and so, so, so I don't know maybe that's not a fair criticism but so I think I, I'm with you in that I used to have a thematic problem with the ending where I don't know. I actually think, I actually think thematically the ending is really strong. It's more of just like a plotting um, yeah. issue. But I yeah, still. I, can, I get where everybody's coming from. Yeah. 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 For, for a bright red. <laughs> I'm saying that as I'm looking at the copy of it with the bright red. <laughs> it is a Pennywise. 
there is one right there. on it. Mac. Uh, I don't. I can't remember what I gave uh, Salem's Lot, but I, I would have to give this one probably three and a half. Pennywise, red clown noses. Um, because I think I gave Salem's Lot four uh, or four and a half. Uh, I, I do really like this book a lot. It was really awesome finally reading it and really seeing uh, King's vision of it. Of, well, King's is the only vision, really, I mean, <laughs> at, at the end of the day. But um, I, I, I did want to comment on something. I thought it was interesting what you were saying with Halloran at the end when he's trying to get there and, and it seems like something's stopping him. And that reminded me of 112263. Absolutely. Yes. How, how, how it was like maybe Fate they were all really supposed to perish at the hotel yeah. and Halloran was just able to just get in there and, and change. Well, because if um, Halloran didn't have the shine, if Dan had the shine, Halloran never would have known about this anyway, and, yeah. and things would have played out. Exactly. So, but, um, yeah, no, I, I, I really did enjoy it a lot. Um, and I also thought uh, the miniseries ending where, th- you know, uh, we're rebuilding, uh, you know, next Ooh. summer, the overlook uh, opens so up again. Well. So I didn't like that, but I did I did love the ending of the book. I felt, you know, to be go- to be put through such a horrible, horrible story of this man just losing and then and 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 ultimately dying. Um, I I did want the uplifting ending finally because you know we haven't we hadn't really been able to get that. I mean we got a, almost two uplifting ending with the miniseries, but um, oh it's too uplifting. It is ultimate way yeah. too uplifting. <laughs> and I did want to say one last thing though with this, you know, uh, did, does Jack, the ghost of Jack, show up in Doctor Sleep? Is is that also haunting him? Uh, briefly, but we will get into that when we get to Doctor. Okay, Sleep. just yeah. just curious. <laughs> We're not, does anybody know about the prologue or epilogue? That uh, was yo, tweeted? I'm sorry. We should have talked about this too. But okay. I do remember the TV Guide um, oh, when the Shining mm, series was announced. Yes. Or I think it was the weeks leading up to it. There's this great uh, kind of animated uh, cover with Jack freezing outside holding the, with the, mallet. The, the mallet. I do remember that. And there's an excerpt of the unreleased prologue and that was in the TV Guide issue. And it just basically talks about there's an event that happens at the hotel back in the 50s or 40s. Yeah. Which they end up kind of talking about in the, in book. the book. So you don't necessarily need it. It's, I, I like how in the book it just kind of gets right to the story. Hmm. Um, the epilogue, I don't know much about, though. Really. Yeah, I don't either. Um, I do remember You're that too, uh, TV Guide issue, though. I remember the the uh, painting was pretty creepy. Yeah, actually. it was good. Yeah, he was yeah. like hunched over. Yeah. There is uh, one epilogue that you do recall from the Kubrick one that, that we've not been oh, able to Oh, there's, there's a couple. Um, at, at this point, it's almost like urban legend where there's a apparently... There's an alternate ending of the Shining movie. Hey, we're here all here to talk. Let, you know what? Let's go room two thirty seven with this and talk <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah. Well, I heard. Well, this is that. You know, Jack is chasing Danny around the maze, screaming. Danny escapes with Wendy, and he's still screaming and stumbling around. And it cuts to a quiet morning. Jack, Wendy, and Danny are at breakfast, eating in silence. And then all of a sudden, a couple sits essentially right on top of them insinuating that none of them made it out and they're mm. all with the hotel and then the movie ends. Now that's something I read it a long time ago and I still cannot find anything yeah. about sense but I read it and I thought that that would have been another eerie ending. So that's there's there's your room 237 from Justin Gerber. <laughs> Very interesting. Um, that was our thoughts on The Shining and we'd love to hear yours. So uh, please uh, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, um, engage with our posts, you know, post on the wall, tell us what we got wrong or what you agree with. We really want to hear your opinions. And, um, you know, as we always say, and we're going to have to say, uh, you know, if we want this podcast to stick around, um, we really, uh, 
your love on iTunes, whether it's a review or a subscribe or anything like that, really helps us and really helps uh, push the podcast and get it visible. So, um, so any help in that regard is very appreciated. We'll be back in two weeks with uh, one of King's more controversial entries into his catalog, um, and that is the novella Rage, which was initially included in the as it was a Richard Bachman book from mm. the get go. It was his first Richard Bachman book. Was later compiled in the Bachman books and has since been pulled from shelves uh, by King himself. Um, we'll talk. We'll discuss why and um, we'll discuss the book itself as well in two weeks. So um, keep an eye out for that. Until then, long days and pleasant nights, uh, constant listeners. We'll see you next time. Consequence Podcast Network.